So what is up, everybody? I'm going to put on some music. Hold on. Like, I got my Apple subscription. Apple. Apple music. We got Apple music. have to reset it. Let's browse. I need to make. I'm already a subscriber. I know I'm already a subscriber. Listen now. Let's see music songs. Um, I'm gonna listen to Selena Gomez. I guess I need to make a list. I need to make a playlist. Like for real. Can I make a? Oh, I can make a playlist. Browse. Okay. I need to create a playlist. So let's see, make a playlist. I need to make a playlist. Brown music. Let me turn this down. Won't let one drop go to waste. Alright. It's too loud, let me know. I'm gonna make me a playlist real quick. Oh, all of the downs and the uppers keep making love to each other. And I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. I should be All of the downs and the uppers keep making love to each other. And I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, but I can't keep my hands Sorry, I like to myself. I'm making a playlist real quick. Can't keep my hands to myself. I don't even have a playlist. I need to see what songs. What song should I add to a playlist? I just subscribed to Apple Music. And you should know with I breathe you in every single day. Selena Gomez. I like country music. Keep making love to each other. And I'm trying, 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 All of the downs in the uppers. Keep making love to each other. And I'm trying, 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 trying. Can I add songs to my playlist? All playlists. I don't even have a playlist. Okay. Can't keep 
songs to add to my um can't keep my hands to myself i mean i could but why would i want to let's do this can i add to a playlist like i i don't see no playlist that i created i need to create a playlist
they ask me, I'll tell them Won't be ashamed, no, I can't wait to tell them Love her, I love her going on in my ear like non-repetitive and I don't mm -mm. okay I need to clear I need to clear this I don't know what list this is whoa that was insane I need to make a um, playlist It's not like the normal way of creating a playlist. Like you just, oh wait, there we go. I found it. Okay. Oh wait. Stop. My cat keeps moving that. Whoops. Ace of base. I remember that group. Ace of base. Oh wow. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Add to library. Okay. Yeah. These are a few songs. Okay, remastered. We'll take this one off. Okay, cool. Summer remastered. Remastered. Don't turn around. Oh, yeah. I, I was going to say don't speak. I remember that. Don't speak. I know what you're saying. Do I have a song on my do I not have any songs? Oh. You and me we used to be together every day together always I really feel that I'm losing my 
Okay, let's see. What other songs do I want to Talkie, I remember that. I want a boyfriend, but I just keep hitting dead ends. Try to take a short. I like Selena. Uh, Selena Gomez's music. She does have some pretty good songs. I dive into the future, but I'm blind. Kill him with kindness. I like this song too. Can I add to my library? Like, I need to know where my library is. I don't have any playlists. I'm confused. But anyway. The world can be a nasty place. You know it. I know it. Yeah. We don't have to fall from grace. Oh, I see. I can add to a playlist. I down the weapons you fight with. And kill them with kindness. Kill them with kindness. Kill them. Kill them. There we go. Add to create a new playlist. There we go. Okay, we'll put some Justin Bieber songs on there too. Can't have any Selena songs without any Justin Bieber you songs. The world and I, fell for it. I put you first and I really don't listen to Justin Bieber, so I'm not gonna put any songs on there. And you let it burn, sing off key in my chorus. See, I'm gonna get yours. some country music. Oh yeah, I want to put some Jelly Roll up there. I saw the signs and I He's got this one song on there. Oh my gosh, where is he? glasses are distorted. Set fire to my purpose, and I let it burn. You got off in the hurting when it wasn't yours. Yeah, we'd always go into it blindly. Add the playlist. I like Jelly Rose. Jelly Rose singing. Turn me down and I'll show him. And so long as you replace us, like it was easy, made me think I deserved it. 
I swear to God that I feel like Khalifa. There's so much smoke that I need me a breather. This ain't sativa, baby. This the sleeper. Sip some tequila. Boot up the diesel. At war with these demons. I need me some Jesus. I stare at the steeple because I'm a believer. And I know some people that die from a needle. Highs the fucking sky. Welcome to the other side. This that cocaine. Lullaby. How to pimp a butterfly. Got partners. I like Jelly Roll's music. Let me see. I want to listen. I don't know which one it is. But there's one of them that I really like. Father, forgive me. I know I have sinned. If anybody wants to hear a song, let me know. Close my eyes and I pray cause I feel the sky's falling on me. me. The sky's falling on me. me. And the and walls caving in and I feel like I just cannot breathe. Like I just cannot breathe. And I feel like I may lose my mind. This is real life. I don't know what I would do without you. Staring at a stranger. I don't know where I would be without you. See, um, I don't know if I could breathe without you. I don't know if yeah. I could live. Let's play this song. Give me a Xanax bar. I don't think that that's your place. Digital shoppers. Digital shoppers. hip-hop hip-hop baby king oh ooh, ooh, ooh. let's listen to fast x let's see at a shuffle oh snap seeing what i'm seeing man hello it's the hello. test movie we gotta go big Vin Diesel's talk about some, it's family, of course it is. I'm not gonna lie, we went from racing to saving the whole entire world. Then look at the lineup, Daddy Yankee. Jim and a BTS. Then look, they got a nice Wait, little Latin vibe to it. Oh, this is Sons of a Singer. I think this is it, the song that I was talking about, that Jelly Roll made.
He made this in September of 2021. I never get lonely. Oh, this is it. I love this song. I got yeah. these goals to keep me company. Yeah. I took the review off of this so forward, so I only see him in front of me. Now the past is out of sight and out of mind. Swore I'd change, now I'm back chasing these white lines. I'm just a long-haired son of a sinner, searching for new ways I can get gone. I'm a pedal to the highway, if you ever wonder why we write these songs. Cause I'm only So the judge came out and weighed in on the challenge. After the song, I'll talk about it. I'm on my way back here somehow. I should know by now. I'm just a long-haired son of a sinner, searching for new ways I can get gone. Alright, anyways, um, I'm going to go over this. Um, let me see if I can get this playing. But I just wanted to play some music for a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Let me see. Um... Hopefully I'll play the video. Do I have it on mute? I don't know. Find out. Okay, here we go. I don't think it's on mute. My fan on in the background. Oh gosh! It's repeating. I had to take it off my stream because you can hear it.
So a judge overseeing the case against Brian Kohlberger charged with killing four University of Idaho students last fall heard arguments Friday over a gag order that largely bars attorneys and other parties in the case from speaking with the news reporters. A coalition of... Oh, gosh. That is in the courtroom, not on my stream. Just so everybody knows. Looks, might be. Let me see. Speech for today. Um, oh boy. Mr. Gray, come on up. Let me mute this. Let me see if it's still playing. Oh gosh, it's echoing and repeating. Okay, hold on a second. I might have to. It's echoing. Really bad. It's echoing. Hold on a second. Check something out. Appreciate your apology. I know that they took that part off. Thank you. Uh, I first want to start with the procedural history of this non-dissemination order, if I could. On January 3rd, 2023, the Judge Marshall ordered uh, submitted a non-dissemination order. And in that order, it applied to parties uh, in the action, which would then the prosecution, the defense, and any agents, investigators involved in it. After that non-dissemination order. Okay. Add a link. Well, let me see the video. Add the video. Oh, I have to select the file. Okay, so that won't work. Add source. Um, wait. Cancel that. Um, image. Okay. General. <laughs> delete scene. Delete that scene. Add source. Add link. I'm seeing if I can get it to play this link without echoing because it was echoing really bad. Sorry, I was it was playing a video. I noticed that. Okay. On TikTok, I'm gonna have to delete this and then re-add um, it. Delete, delete, delete. It keeps echoing a TikTok video that I had playing while I was going into TikTok. Add scene. Let's see. Oh, add source link. Add. All right. 
Hopefully it'll play now with no problems. I think it sucks really bad because it's not letting me scroll. Like, even when I'm scrolling, scrolling on the page, it doesn't show it scrolling, so it makes no sense. But the judge weighed in. Let's see. It says, it remains appropriate to have an order reminding lawyers and their agents of the rules of engagement in this country and that we try cases in court, not in the press. So basically what I was saying yesterday, that this is the reason why they would the court would keep the gag order in place because of the fact that they obviously try the cases in court and not out in the public and they don't want the public to come out and make, you know, false uh, accusations or statements or allege that he's guilty, knowing that, um, obviously, they'll be in front of a jury and the jury will decide whether or not he's guilty. But Kohlberger, he's 28 years old and he was charged with four counts of first-degree murder and burglary in connection with the stabbing death in Moscow on November 13, 2022. Yeah, it's not playing that great, I notice. Yeah, it's not playing that great, I notice. Alright, I'm gonna take that off because it's not it's not doing what I want it to do. It's echoing and everything else. Delete. Okay, well I'll just um play it this way. So everybody can hear it. This is what happened um, at Brian Kohlberger's most recent court hearing. Turn it up. It's on court TV. They posted this at a little bit before 8 p.m. on the 9th. On Court TV. If you want to watch it, I'll give it the website. Let's see. is during Friday arguments Wendy Olson and attorney oh my gosh hold on I think that was going on in the courtroom I gotta fast forward through that because it hurts my ears 
people are con con confused uh, when Mr. Koberger declined to enter a plea. And I, I just wanted to clear that up because I didn't really see any explanation about that in the media. So he's talking about Koberger not playing a plea, making a plea, and uh, about the media. He's letting everybody know that if a defendant refuses to plead, then the court must put in a plea for them, which that's a normal procedure. This was on Court TV. It's about an hour long. 51 minutes and 17 seconds. about to sneeze. Sorry about that. And uh, they appreciate your apology. I know that they took that part off. My cat's crying. Uh, I would first want to start with the procedural history of this non-dissemination order, if I could. On Come here, baby. My cat's crybaby. The Judge Marshall ordered uh, submitted a non-dissemination order. And in that order, it applied to parties uh, in the action, which would have been the prosecution, the defense, and any agents investigators involved in. After that non-dissemination order was issued, I reached out to uh, the prosecutor's The media is upset because they still have a gag order. For some reason, I don't know if they took it down, but I couldn't find it online. Um, and they informed me that they were not privy to give me that information. Um, then on January... Olson suggested that allowing prosecutors and defense attorneys to speak with reporters if they want to to explain legal procedures or terms, uh, for example, would improve coverage of the case. Not necessarily, because they might accidentally talk about evidence or something about the case that can't be talked about. Zoom call to speak to all interested parties. The Zoom call occurred at 4 o'clock During that meeting, the judge reminded us, all the parties involved, uh, it was the prosecution, it was the defense, it was myself, it was the attorneys for the victims, 
families. Uh, They're saying that the um, Unabomber Ted Kaczynski believed to have died by suicide. And they're saying that a murder suspect was arrested hearing, after nearly 40 here. years on the run. I'm going to have to find out who that is. She talks about the rule applies to all lawyers participating in the Zoom meeting. The suspect in the 1980. Ooh, I'm going to have to talk about that. When she had that Zoom meeting, and I requested the transcript from that Zoom A suspect meeting, in a 1984 Florida murder was arrested. Okay, I'm going to read about that after this. But as part of that meeting, I had questioned uh, Judge Marshall regarding the victim's family and whether or not they were allowed to speak to the media based on the fact that she had said all interested parties as well in the, in the initial non-dissemination order. Um, I didn't receive any clarification. I was just instructed to go back to Idaho Rules of Professional Conduct 3.6 as well as uh, I was told and this is in quotes from her Zoom release, take their duties in that most regard in conducting themselves and advising their clients. I took that as I should tell my clients to be quiet. Um, she reiterated that again in the Zoom call by saying that my I had ethical duties striped above and the, and the uh, Iver Rules of Professional Conduct uh, for commentary of Rule 3.6. And she reminded me later that lawyers have a responsibility in giving advice to their clients. Um, I disagreed with Judge Marshall on almost every point during that meeting. Oh, um, my shirt. As well as, if I had known that we were going to be discussing the Idaho Rules of Professional Conduct in, those, uh, in that issue, I would have prepared. But only having a three-hour notice uh, to allow me, and not knowing what the subject of the meeting was going to be, didn't allow me to address those issues at that time. Now, after the non-dissemination order in January 3rd and then the January 13th, 2023 uh, meeting, the judge amended the non-dissemination order uh, on January 18th. And she basically repeated the same order, except for, she added, the attorneys for any interested party in this case, including attorneys representing witnesses, victims, or victims' families, as well as parties to the above entitled action. So you can see the difference is that the first one dealt with parties to the case. The second one went way over the top, addressing all attorneys that might be associated with the case or any attorneys that might have an interested party in this case. So that's where we are today. I filed a motion based on that additional language. Now, I'd like to get into some of the issues here. It's very clear that I am not a party to the case and the victim's families are not a party to the case. That's very clear through all of the case law, as well as... Can I, can I interrupt you? Yes. There's, there's no dispute about that. Okay. Then I, you're not, you're not, uh, your, your clients are not parties. The only parties of this case are the state and Mr. Colbert. That's that's okay. and so, that's that's clear that's clear in the in the case law uh, with regard to any victims or victims' families. There are constitutional protections and statutory protections for victims and their families. And I would that's, agree. That's that's well established. So 
let's get into the actual non-dissemination order itself, how it addresses to me personally as the attorney for the victim's family. Um, this non-dissemination order, of all of the cases and all of the motions that were filed, and referencing every case that was listed in this case, none of them apply to a victim's attorney, an attorney representing the victims. The IOV trap tap case was an attorney uh, speaking about a judge who he was in front of. The Good case was a defense attorney that spoke to the media. The Mezabov case was a defense attorney and a prosecutor. The Morrissey case was a defense attorney and a press conference. Barner versus Delahunty was an attorney and a judge, all parties to the case. Cutler was a defense attorney, U.S. v. Cutler. Zao versus Slav was a defense attorney. Irwin versus Dowd were the prosecutor's actions and speaking to the media. Shepard v. Marshall, Maxwell, is a probabilist regarding the prosecutor's actions prior to trial. None of those things apply to the victim's family or the victim's attorney in any way. Now, I do agree that the court has the power to control those that are parties to the case and that are involved in the case in some way. But we have to define that, what means involvement in the case. Part of that is that the judge referred to the Idaho Rules of Professional Conduct 3.6, Probabilicity. She references that multiple times as the basis for her non-dissemination order in this case and how it might apply to me. If you'll read the first paragraph, a lawyer who participates or has participated in the investigation or litigation of a matter shall not make extrajudicial statements. That is not me. It never has been me. It can't be me because I'm not involved in the litigation. She also says that... Can I ask a question about that? Because, I mean, I think the case law uh, is is quite clear that uh, attorneys who are representing witnesses can be be restricted to some degree, partly uh, because they have access to particular information that may not, should not be shared with the public. Um, And... If I'm recalling correctly, um, the state has suggested or has determined that your your clients are witnesses potentially. So that's 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 kind of the and, and issue I right there. Honor. Go ahead. As part of that is that let's just make it clear: the victim's family has never been involved in this investigation ever from the get-go. When, after Mr. Koberger was indicted, we received no information about anything regarding the prosecution. Nothing. They wouldn't even tell us that a grand jury was being impaneled for Mr. Koberger. They told us that there was a grand jury that was being impaneled. And common sense, we figured it out, because he's the only guy in the the county. But they wouldn't even relay that information. They haven't given us any information regarding the investigation of the case. But the most critical part of it is that the prosecution has never, ever interviewed the Gonzalez family. So how in the world would we ever be able to be witnesses in this case? And for what purpose would we be? If you're asking about for sentencing spaces, purposes, that's post-conviction. That's after he's been convicted on the case. Prior to trial, we're not any witnesses. And that falls into completely different statutes. That falls into the restitution statute. It falls into the victim statute. 
I just handled that matter in front of the Lori Vallow case, where the judge, I had a motion, the defense did not want the victim's family to appear. And so the judge had to make a determination whether they were immediate family, because it was the grandparents. Completely different statutes because that was post-conviction. And that witnesses, those witnesses were allowed in the courtroom and were involved in the sentencing aspect of it. Okay? So we are in a very, very different factual situation here. I'm not asking as a witness to the case, which witness to the case, they've never ever told us in any way how we would be witnesses in this case, other than the conjecture that we may have potentially. That's not good enough to stop the free speech of the victim's family, as well as myself. The other thing is that if the victims can say whatever they want, they're in the free speech and that's exempt, why would I not be allowed to say the same thing that they say? My understanding is that your clients are not restricted in any way, never have been. Well, I'll give you an example. Is that true? That's right. Well, I agree now, because that's not the tone of the Zoom meeting. He's like, I agree now. I'm not talking about the tone. I'm talking about the language of the order. Yes. The language of the order now, because any interested party that asks for clarification, now I understand that they can say whatever they want. And that's correct. But here's the problem. If they said, we think the judge is crazy, would I advise them against that? Absolutely. Thank you. But if I went and said, my victim, the family asked, has said that they think the judge is crazy. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm repeating exactly what they said. Now, what comes into play is, for our purposes today, is what if I offer up my own opinion? Right? Well, then I'm already governed by the Idaho rules of professional conduct. And if I... I'm glad you're acknowledging that. He's like, I'm glad you're acknowledging that, because you don't want anybody to go around calling him crazy. So, I'm not, but every rule doesn't apply all the time. If I'm talking poorly about a judge, another rule might pop in. 8.3, I think, is what it is. Or 8.1. If I'm saying other things that might affect things another way, then maybe the probabilistic. But the probabilistic, I don't even think, applies to me in this anyway. Because if you look at it, it says it applies to a lawyer who is participating or has participated in the investigation or litigation of a matter, shall not make extrajudicial statements. And it goes on, highlighted by Judge Marshall, then in paragraph 3. The rule sets forth a basic general prohibition about lawyers making statements that no lawyer knows or should know will have a substantial likelihood of materially prejudicing the adjudicated proceeding. And at the bottom of the paragraph, it says this. Rule only applies to lawyers who are or who have been involved in the investigation or litigation of cases and their associates. If I'm not a party to the case, I can't be involved in the investigation or the litigation of this case in any way. So I would argue that the probabilistic rule of professional conduct does not apply to me as well. Help me understand what you think you can't say that you've already been saying. I have no idea. I have no idea what you're talking about. You've been on the media and you've had interviews. So I'm kind of wondering how do you feel that you've been restrained in any way with this order? I think you're not seeing what the point is. What the point is is that the court has issued 
The judge is telling him he understands and sees his point. The strict First Amendment rights that is overly broad in almost every aspect of it. Anybody that's interested and they have an attorney. When an attorney who's walking down the street could offer up his opinion in any way, it also takes away from the idea, doesn't the court want victims, families, to have representation, to guide them through the legal process? Don't they, wouldn't the court encourage that? That they could explain things and maybe advise them on what to say, what not to say? I mean, I, if you're taking my voice away, you're taking the voice away of everything. The other part of it is this, is that I'm absolutely blown away that the prosecution doesn't agree with me in this case. The reason being is that we, they are representing the victims, which in turn are the victims' families. And I have not seen a poorer line of communication in my 22 years of practicing than the prosecution's office and the Gonzalez family. And I think it, it, it stems from, initially, we were critical of the investigation. They, were, they wanted to find the person who did this. That's normal emotions. And then from that point on, it has been, we are the enemy. And that's how we feel in this. And so, me guiding them, and then trying to limit my voice and helping them out in some way, and then throwing out a random idea that they may be potential witnesses when they never ever interviewed them, in any way. It's just an attempt to shut the attorney out and shut the family out. Is what it is. Well, that's what they're trying because to do is to protect the case. Secure prosecution against we Brian Colbert. In this case, we've done all of these things. It may be a different story. We haven't done anything. They haven't interviewed the entire family. So well, I don't know I don't I don't know what's in all the investigation, obviously, uh, and a lot of us don't know and probably won't know well, until the trial. And the other thing. Maybe, well, let me just say this. I think one of, one of the potential issues is uh, this is potentially a death penalty case. Hasn't been noticed, but it, that is uh, a potential. Uh, and uh, the families of the victims. Oh, I think my dog's coming down here. Witnesses <laughs> in that process. In the process, uh, so I have that job. I have I have a job of protecting and preserving the First Amendment and also the Sixth Amendment. And there is some balancing there. That is why uh, lawyers who have access to information that is not accessible by the public uh, have particular restrictions. That's what this, that's what this whole case is, is about. I mean, this hearing is about. And as an officer of the court, I can tell you we have zero access. Okay, so you're not you're saying that you're that the prosecutor's office has not shared information with your client regarding the facts of this case. No, they haven't. Okay. All right. How how things occur? Everybody's going to have a chance to weigh in on this, and I I just you know I'm you're helping me understand what the issues are. So thank you. Well, is so 
that's really the issue here. I mean, and, and it's, this is an important ruling because what you're doing is, is this has never happened before, ever has it happened before, that a judge, Judge Marshall, has tried to silence the attorneys for victims. Never has it happened that I'm aware of. Would you, would you feel more comfortable if uh, there was a more concrete description of what people could say and what they can't say? I don't think you have the authority to, Your Honor. Well, I think I do have the authority. I, I, well, my argument is, is that, part of the argument is that... In fact, I know I have the authority to do that. Well, and the authority would be through your fair, the attempt to have a fair and impartial jury, that you can control uh, people that are involved in the case, correct? That's part of it. And we're not involved in the case. Okay. That, so, that that's, is, that's hard to accept. But we're not witnesses in the case. We're not involved in the investigation. We're not involved in the litigation. I can't file any motions. I can't subpoena anybody. I can't cross-examine witnesses. I can't do anything. So this idea that there's this loose idea that there may be weighing that versus our freedom to speak, the First Amendment, is... We're talking about your that's right. speech. That's right. Not your client's speech. But that is that's my speech. That is part of it, though. Well, in your in your memorandum, you 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 are suggesting that you also have an independent position that you are representing yourself. I do. It's distinct and distinctive from your responsibility to your clients. That's why the motion is for amending or clarification because there's the clients that have the free to speak. There's me repeating what they have to say. If they said the judge, we thought the judge was. Crazy, and I said the judge was crazy. I can't be. It doesn't violate the non-dissemination order because I'm allowed to say that. And then there's my independent voice where I said the judge is crazy. Yeah, I think the judge is crazy. That goes into another layer, right? Where it would be, I would be Idaho Rules of Professional Conduct would fall into play, and what I would be doing or what I couldn't do. Not the non-dissemination order because we're not parties to the case. I'd be governed by the Idaho Rules of Professional Conduct if I made those statements, extradited those statements. And I might, may or may not fall under the probability. I would argue that I don't, because I'm not a party to it. I'm not litigated it, I don't have any, any information on it, none of those things. So, really, that's where the authority for me, for my voice, would come from the Idaho Rules of Professional Conduct, if I did that. And if I made a statement, that I thought didn't apply for trial publicity purposes, that would be an argument for another day. But it wouldn't be for you, for a contempt of court for me, because I'm not a party to the case and I'm not involved in the case in any way. I'm just repeating what my clients say or I'm just saying my own individual opinion, which doesn't, by the way, makes it absolutely unduly prejudicial. Because what if a guy is on an Idaho bar number, is walking down the street, looks up, sees a television uh, program where the Gonzalez family says, well, we thought the judge was crazy, right? And then all of a sudden, the media is outside and they interview him. They say, hey, you're an attorney here. What about the judge being crazy? Well, I've been in front of him three or four times and I, did, I, I would agree with him. You're going to sanction him and contempt of court? You can't. Same as me, because I'm not a party to it. He's not a party to it. He might be governed by the Idaho Rules of Professional Conduct by commenting on you, Your Honor, but it wouldn't be because of the judge's non-dissemination order. So how can it not apply to him, but it can apply to me?
It can. Well, the, the case law suggests that uh, because you represent potential witnesses that you have access to information that may not uh, or should not be shared with the public. That's, that's, that's what the case law says. And I would argue this. What, what potential witnesses are we, number one? And what access to information do we have? I think the defense has argued that we have some sort of access because I have the clients can tell me whatever they want to tell me, right? Well, that's free speech. They can say whatever they want to me, and I can go off and say whatever I want that they said. Because it's free speech. It's the First Amendment. So you can't... I mean, this non-dissemination order is so broad, none of the case law applies to people that are outside of the defense or the prosecution. That's the point of it. That's the whole point of a non-dissemination order, because they have access to it. They have access to the information. Victims, attorneys, families do not. And the idea that we may or may not be a potential witness is enough for your honor? I just can't see that. Especially when there's no history of them ever being a witness. And to tell you the truth, the day after they filed that notice, or the day before they filed the notice that we may be potential witnesses, we had just gotten out of a meeting with the prosecutor's office. Discussing whatever we could discuss, like our concerns, because that's all we do is go in and talk about our concerns, and they tell us, we can't say anything, we can't say anything, we can't say anything. We'll get to it. When we walked up, nowhere in that meeting were we described as being witnesses in this case. But all of a sudden, the next day, they thought we might be, even though they've never interviewed us. So, they're throwing stuff in the air that is not justified, and the idea that he thinks maybe might oh, wow. is not enough to regulate They're my still disputing over this gag order. attorney for the victim's family, because that's what we are. We're not attorney for witnesses. We're attorney for the victim's family. If the court has any other questions, I'd be more than happy. Hand back on. Hot. Thank you, Mr. Gray. So let me go to the state. I don't know if that's Mr. Thompson or Mr. Rutherford. Uh, don't be me. Can I have one moment, Your Honor? Certainly. Thank you. This is on Court TV's website if you want to go there and watch it. All right, if I may. Um, uh, yes, you may. Mr. Rudley is actually um, going to be arguing on the motions themselves, but as attorneys, we have a duty of candor to the court. Mr. Gray has made representations to the court that at best are misleading. And oh, my cat scared me just now. I was like, what? I'm trying to eat my cheese. I I do Hold not on. want the public to come away with the impression that in the Floor, because he's getting in the cords and everything. Mr. Gray, on behalf of his clients, has propounded a number of questions to our office and investigators. We have answered the ones that we can. We have not shared ones that we are concerned Mr. Gray or his clients would make public and compromise the integrity of the investigation. For him to say that we've provided more information is simply not true. Secondly, claims that law enforcement has not interviewed his clients, that somehow that is the investigator's fault. 
In fact, from the very beginning, the investigators have attempted to interview his clients, and Mr. Gray has not permitted it. My cat's trying so hard to eat my two sticks. Thank you, Your Honor. If I can speak to that, Your Honor. You'll be able to Thank come you. back in after you hear the other arguments. Thank you. Mr. Rutherford, go ahead. Thank you, Your Honor. In State v. Spencer, the Supreme Court noted that it is also the duty of the prosecutor to ensure the right to a fair and impartial trial. Under the dictates of Shepard v. Maxwell, the court has a duty to take affirmative steps to address the impacts that intense pretrial publicity can have on a case. As noted in Shepard, Nebraska Press Association v. Stewart, and their progeny, an order like the one in this case is an appropriate measure for addressing that duty of the court. As Mr. Boston's experts have noted, attorneys often have information about a case that may not be appropriate for dissemination in the press. Additionally, attorneys carry a greater weight when dealing, appearing on television. For instance, what might be easier for the parties to address is a juror that says, I've seen coverage on the case, but I don't always trust what I've seen on TV, and I can set that aside. What's more difficult is a juror that says, I've seen attorneys for the prosecution, attorneys for the defense, or attorneys for the victims on television talking about a critical aspect of the case. In the matter of Gentile v. State Bar of Nevada, that case involved an attorney who held one press conference in 1991 after the indictment of his client. In this case, Mr. Grace repeatedly received statements and been on television. At minimum, it's insincere to argue that he's feeling bound by the order when it's clearly not abided by. In Gentile, the court noted that the speech of attorneys is subject to less substantial, or it can be regulated by less substantial means. In this case, as we've shown by the affidavit we filed, the Gonsalves families are potential witnesses in a trial, or more specifically, at sentencing. The order in this case is not vague, overbroad, unduly restrictive, or not narrowly drawn. It precludes all extrajudicial statements of the attorneys in this case, attorneys for the witnesses, victims, law enforcement, and investigators. The order addresses, if the court were to apply strict scrutiny, the order addresses a substantial likelihood that pretrial publicity poses to the integrity of the judicial system, and is tailored to ensure that the rights to a fair trial are upheld. As we briefed in the case of Levine, the alternatives such as sequestration of the jury, or changing a venue, aren't going to mitigate the impacts of... While I'm eating my cheese stick, I muted my mic so you guys didn't have to hear me chew my cheese sticks. ...and are unlikely to do so. 
Thus, the state contends that the order is an appropriate measure of the court to uphold its duty under Shepard, Nebraska Press Association, and the like to preserve the right to a fair and impartial trial. At a minimum, um, Mr. Gray's statements that he's not bound by trial publicity rules or 3.6 in this case illustrate why the order of the court is necessary um, in this matter. And so we would ask that the court uphold the amended non-dissemination order or at most uh, tailor it to um, those statements specifically precluded in Rule of Professional Conduct 3.8. With that, I'll stand for questions. Thank you, Mr. Redley. Yeah, do you think that would be helpful to just, and I, I asked uh, Mr. Gray this same question, uh, would it be helpful to say, okay, you can say these things, but you can't say these things, and be more specific about that? Your Honor, I, our initial position is that the total prohibition of extrajudicial statements is the safest and most um, responsive way in this case to address um, and preserve the right to a fair and impartial trial. All right. Can you can you uh, go back? You mentioned this about the standard standard, particularly applied to uh, to the lawyers who are somehow connected with the case. Yes, Your Honor. I. In Nebraska Press Association v. Stewart, it's noted that, the, um, I believe Justice Brennan states that there's no doubt that the court has authority, though uh, it, it's in a footnote, it's no doubt that the court has authority to regulate the speech of attorneys, witnesses, um, and other participants in the court process. At this point, the evidence that's been provided is that the family would be potential witnesses in the case, as Mr. Thompson mentioned. Um, we ne haven't necessarily been able to make a full assessment of that, but undoubtedly they'd be uh, witnesses in any sentencing. I mean, I personally feel that he's guilty. Lower standard. Your Honor, in, um, we would argue that the court should apply the standard in Gentile versus State Bar of Nevada, where the court, uh, Supreme Court stated that, um, I don't want to mess this up, quick here, that the speech of lawyers may be regulated um, under a less, uh, less demanding standard. So we would argue that so long as the court finds that um, it has a duty under Shepard to preserve the right to a fair and impartial trial that the order the only part that uh, i thought was weird is how uh, he brought up addresses the substantial likelihood that he was the only one arrested uh, that negative pretrial publicity would have on that right then the court would have authority to impose so is he going to try to claim someone else help Judge, I think um, a lot has already been said, and obviously we wrote a lot in the briefing, so I guess I'll just touch Interesting. on a couple of things. Um, in terms of the argument that the victim's families are not uh, involved in the litigation of this case and therefore don't fall into 3.6, it would be our position that if you have 
statutory and constitutional rights involved in this case, you're involved in the litigation. Regardless of whether or not the prosecution is willing to work closely with you or whatever issue you have there, the reality is that you have literal rights that permit you certain things that are involved in this case. You're involved in litigation, and therefore you fall within 3.6 just like everyone else. Second, the standard from Gentile is the substantial likelihood of material prejudice. I don't want to get too much into that, Judge. I think that's kind of this afternoon's argument. I think the main thing before the court as far as Mr. Gray and the family is just do they fall within this and then the court to decide what is appropriate. But I would note that given the vast amount of media coverage in this case and the fact that it seems like no matter what anybody says or does, in one way, shape, or form, it will be twisted into an attack on my client. We also agree that at this point the safest thing to do is for everyone to just not be talking to the media and allow statements to be made here where we all get a chance to speak and the media gets all that information. If they still choose to do what they've been doing, then that's on them. But we don't have somebody who's just trying to... After this, I'm going to talk about a murder suspect that was arrested after nearly 40 years on the run. So that's our main concern. The only other thing that I wanted to address, and the court addressed this a little bit, the reason we stand silent with grand jury indictments... Oh, sorry. Because there's an old article that says that if you have a grand jury indictment and you enter a plea, you are accepting the validity of the indictment. I haven't seen a prosecutor try to use that in a long time, but we can avoid any possible claims that somehow we can't challenge... I just had to mute my mic because my son was making me burp. Sorry. For some reason, the only... Like, I can drink Dr. Pepper and it won't make me burp, but whenever I drink the strawberries and cream Dr. Pepper, like... I don't know. It makes me burp. I don't know if they place too much carbonation in it or what is going on, but... It's my new favorite Dr. Pepper flavor, but I notice it makes me burp. Like, the normal Dr. Pepper doesn't. It's weird. Thank you. 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 Thank you.
clarifying. Because there's like a well, few more places that I've reported her to. Because I won't have the authority to follow any other motions on anything else in this case. Why, because, why would you say that? Well, because I'm not a party to the case. You can still, I mean, the media is not a party of the case either. Once again, they, well, the Supreme Court has said they have standing to come in to the court and address issues. So, yeah, but that's completely separate. They're not. Well, I know it's separate. Okay, so. I also, I also uh, respect uh, your position in representing <clears throat> families, uh, victim, uh, families, victim, excuse me, victim's family. And, uh, and I respect that, and there's a, there are some constitutional issues, rights, that they have. So I'm not, I'm not just uh, dismissing that. And, and the mere fact that you have a right, I, I, I'm absolutely positive that the Idaho uh, legislature and the Constitution, when they gave victims rights, didn't, didn't think that that was implementing those victims into the trial in some way. Absolutely positive that wasn't your intention. So, so this idea that if you have rights, then you're involved is just beyond. Um, that being said, Your Honor, nothing precluded the prosecution from contacting uh, my clients well before I was representing them. I had almost three weeks to uh, contact them. Um, I, don't, I think, don't mark me on this, I think I was retained on December 5th. I think that was the day. I don't have my file in front of me, but it would hold me to it. But I think that was the day. So they had plenty of time to contact my clients and interview them if they were going to be potential uh, witnesses in this case. And since then, every time we have had a meeting, we have initiated that conversation. It hasn't been the prosecution initiating that conversation. So, so are you saying since since you have been representing <clears throat> uh, your I already have a petition. Let's see my petition. Oh, I've already got more people to sign my petition. It's awesome. I would say this in the meetings that I have had with the I just need forty one more supporters to sign my petition. Whether and then it says that I'll go to the next goal. I'm gonna share it. And they've never taken a someone. And maybe a random email. Here and there, it says something and no follow-up whatsoever about anything. So, this idea that they are going to be witnesses in this case is just an attempt by the prosecution to shut them up as well as to shut me up. And by the way, it's probably I, bad. I, I, people completely forget about this. All of the information that has been there's only about three more minutes left of this from the get-go. <clears throat> was the mayor, Art Betke. Mm -hmm. uh, Chief Fry had interviews. Bill Thompson had interviews. The coroner had interviews. All of those people had interviews. We didn't. We didn't until we, we started getting information and started trying to figure out what was going on after they had given interview after interview after interview. That was the purpose of the judge issuing the non-dissemination order, is to quiet them up, not quiet the victims up. They had no control over that investigation from the get-go. That, that order was a stipulation between that's, the state and, and Mr. Koberger. That's the other thing, though, is that the court, after that Zoom meeting, Judge Marshall incorrectly said that that was stipulated by all parties. I never stipulated to that. I emailed the You're judge. Not a party. 
Exactly right. I'm not involved in the case. The stipulation was between the parties. So you correctly stated who the parties are. So we would ask. I agree. But you, you were suggesting that, that it was entered to, to, to shut down the prosecutor's office. Why would they? That's what you just said. I, I do think the He's like, that's just what you said. They understood that their investigation was getting out of hand. Too many people were talking in their investigation, and that's why they stipulated to it. Yes, I do. When you say they, you mean the prosecutor's office? Yes. All right. He wants to blame the prosecutor. Go find him. You go. We're not a party to the case. You're very aware of that. I have the right to repeat what my clients say to the media. I also have an independent right governed by the Idaho Rules of Professional Conduct regarding those individual rights versus my own opinions. But those opinions, I don't firmly believe, would fall under the publicity rule on the Idaho Rules of Professional Conduct because I'm not litigating it or part of the litigation. And the reason those things are in place are because people that have real privy information regarding the prosecution and the defense, which I don't, which my clients don't in any way, it shouldn't apply, Your Honor. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Green. All right. Well, I'm not going to issue a decision today. I'm going to issue a written decision. There is a lot of briefing, and I heard some very interesting argument today. And I'll get back to work and try to get a decision out as soon as possible. So anything else we need to address before I adjourn? Mr. Thompson? I don't think so, Your Honor. Ms. Taylor? Mr. Thompson? Anything else? Your Honor, we just, we thought you'd probably want to issue an order and wait. But I guess we're just wondering if in the meantime, the order as it is remains in place. Yes. Thank you. It remains in place until I address it. So with that, we are adjourned. Thank you all. Okay, so I'm going to talk about this other case now that this is over with. Um, a murder suspect was arrested after um, 40 years on the run. Let me see if I can put um, their photo at source image. Um, let's see. Desktop right here. Desktop. Images. June 11th. I got to see what I saved on. This might be it right here. Let me see.
Yeah, this is it. Okay. So, the mur- this murder suspect was arrested after uh, nearly 40 years on the run. The suspect in a 1984 Florida murder was arrested in San Diego County after nearly 40 years on the run. That is insane. According to the San Diego County Sheriff's Department, Donald Santini, 64, was booked into the San Diego Central Jail Wednesday. U.S. Marshals and said uh, Santini was arrested in Campo after authorities received a lead from the Florida Caribbean Regional Fugitive Task Force. The Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office told Scripps uh, News San Diego that Santini is suspected of killing 33-year-old Cynthia Wood. Authorities discovered Woods um, on... June 9th, 1984, in a water-filled ditch in Riverview, Florida. The victim was last seen leaving her residence approximately five days prior to finding her body. An autopsy later determined that the cause of death was strangulation. Authorities said Wood last seen with Santini. Um, It's saying to go scroll down below to read the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office um, statement. They said, we are aware of this arrest and have sent detectives to interview Santini while we wait extradition. This arrest allows us to re-examine evidence collected in 1984 using the technology of today, which is a good thing. As of the uh, case is now considered open once again, while that process is underway, we want to protect the integrity of the investigation and can't release any um, further details. Um, let me see if I can click on this. I wanted to see if there was an actual video of it. Oh, wait. I think I found one. The ad used too many times resources for your device, so Chrome removed it. Okay. I'm trying to see if there's a video that I can share. Years Here we on go. The, run. the suspect in a Florida murder was arrested this week in San Diego. U.S. Marshals said they arrested Donald Santini in Campo after getting a lead from a fugitive task force. He was wanted in the murder of 33-year-old Cynthia Wood, who was found in a ditch back in 1984. Santini was booked into the San Diego Central Jail. His extradition hearing is set for tomorrow morning. Yeah, I wanted to see if there was a a video. My cat. Yes, I see you right there. You're trying to figure out what this um, arm is. It's holding my microphone. You see that? I just moved it from that side of my desk to that side. My cat's trying to figure out (laughs) and smell my microphone arm bar thing. Trying to figure out what it is, but... He should know because I just moved it from my right side of my computer desk to my left side. Here in the new future, I'm going to be probably um, 
having a new location, like, either here or, like, getting an office space to where um, I can go to to do my podcast or whatever, but I'm thinking about doing it, like, in either another... I have a spare bedroom, so I'm thinking about possibly seeing about um, if I can use that room. Otherwise, I will possibly rent out a place to do my podcast. I enjoy being um, in this large space that I'm in, but I also just want to have a space that's just for my podcast. So then when I have people on my podcast, they can come there if they want to. <clears throat> All right. Um, So a Texas inmate convicted of robbery assault was captured after prison escape. A 22-year-old, oh, I feel like I'm going to sneeze. A 22-year-old inmate was captured Sunday about 250 miles from the West Texas prison. Um, he had escaped from hours earlier after climbing over a fence. Oh my gosh, I'm going to sneeze. I got allergies. This is the inmate right there. Let's look for his name. His name is Trent Thompson. He was last seen at the Formy unit in Plainview about 11.14 p.m. on Saturday. The Texas Department of Criminal Justice said... He was captured about 11.15 a.m. Sunday um, in Coleman, located southeast of Plainview. <clears throat> After climbing over a fence at the prison, officials believe that Thompson then stole a vehicle. Department of Criminal Justice spokesperson, or spokeswoman Amanda Hernandez says, Thompson had been convicted of three counts of aggravated robbery out of Taylor County and Coleman County, as well as an aggravated assault on a public servant out of Coleman County. The Department of Justice said that his projected release date was in 2052. He will now face felony escape charges, prison officials um, announced today. Wait, what? Decline that. It was wanting to ask me if I wanted ads or whatever. I'm like, no, or pay to get their AP subscription for their news. I'm like, no. Last year, a grandfather and his four grandson, whose ages ranged from 11 to 18, were killed at their ranch in Central Texas by a convicted murderer who had escaped from a prison transport bus. The inmate Gonzalo Lopez killed the family about three weeks after his escape. He then stole a truck from the ranch and drove it more than 200 miles. 
before he was shot to death by police. <clears throat> so he was convicted of robbery, assault, and he was captured after prison in um, escape. All right. Last, but... Oh, get the morning wire. Join now. I don't want to join. Alrighty. So, let me delete this. Add source. Um... <clears throat> it says an American musician was arrested in Moscow on drug suspicion. Moscow is AP. It says an American musician who has lived in Russia for more than a decade has been arrested on suspicion of drug trafficking. Russian news media reported yesterday. The report said Michael Travis Leak is suspected of selling um, methadone whose effects are similar to those of cocaine and MDMA. A Moscow court ordered him to be held for two months in pre-trial detention. Um, knowing what just recently happened to Brittany Griner, I don't think he will be getting out anytime soon. He faces charges of production or distribution of drugs, which carry a sentence of up to 20 years in prison. I agree that that's a long time. An Instagram page under the name Travis Link identifies him as the singer for the band Lovi Notch. I, I don't know if it's Notch or Notch. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it wrong, but I apologize if I am. News reports said Link is a former paratrooper with the U.S. military and has lived in Moscow since 2010. I would have moved... <sighs> but... Anyways, Russian, draw, Russian drug laws are strict, which that is true. WNBA star Brittany Griner was uh, arrested in February 2022 after vape canisters containing cannabis oil were found in her luggage at a Moscow, uh, Moscow airport. She was sentenced to nine years in prison, but was released in December in an exchange for U.S. imprisoned Russian arms dealer Victor Bout. The U.S. State Department said in an emailed statement to the Associated Press that it was aware of the report that a U.S. citizen had recently been arrested in Moscow. It, it said when a U.S. citizen is detained overseas, the department pursues consular access as soon as possible and works to provide all appropriate consular assistance. The department said it would have no further comment due to the privacy considerations. Let me see. I'm trying to see if there's any, um, 
other um oh okay so there's a florida woman let me see if i can play this but there's a florida woman who fatally shot neighbor appears in court the sheriff releases details of the racist threats St. Petersburg, Florida, a white Florida woman. I don't really know why whenever they're writing news articles, they have to bring uh, and tell, you know, bring race into it. Why can't they just say a woman instead of having to say like uh, a white woman or whatever? Like, I don't understand, but. It says a woman was charged with shooting and killing her so the neighbor was black, is what they're saying. They're majorly like. I I just don't understand why they have to do this when writing articles. Like, I don't know. I'm against it. But to each their own. Um. The neighbor told detectives that she called the victim's children by racist slurs in the months leading up to the slaying, according to an arrest report released Thursday. Susan Louise Lawrence, 58, admitted to detective that she called the children the N-word, so she was being racist to her kids. One child told deputies that the night of the shooting, Lawrence, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her last name right, came out of her house and gave the children the middle finger and also said this, get away from my house, you BL slave. Like, I don't like like saying that. She didn't say the N-word, but she called her, the B, you know, by the race of her color and then called her slave. I don't like saying that kind of stuff. The report from the Marion County Sheriff's Office came out shortly before Lawrence made her initial appearance in court Thursday by video. She has begun charged with first-degree felony, manslaughter with a firearm, as well as culpable negligence, a battery on two counts of assault. Sheriff Billy Wood said in a statement, Lawrence appeared wearing a black protective vest, answered the judge's questions about her um, finances, and her attorney and assistant public defender appointed by the judge entered a written plea of not guilty. A bond hearing will be scheduled in the coming days. Um, a Jake Owens, a 35-year-old black mother of four, was killed this week in Ocala, Ocala. I don't know if it's Ocala. I don't know if that's, like, because it's in Florida. So, Ocala or Ocala. I don't know how they pronounce that town. But it's north of Orlando. Owen's mother, Pamela Diaz, has said she will now raise her four young grandchildren. Supporters of Owen's family gathered Thursday evening for a vigil outside of the Ocala Church where the slain woman's funeral is scheduled for Monday. In a statement to investigators um, after the shooting, Lawrence was quoted saying she had problems for two years with children in their neighborhood not respecting her, including the victim's children who range in the age from 3 to 12 years old. Lawrence advised that the children of Owens have told her in the past they would kill her. The report said the day of the shooting, Lawrence told investigators she had a headache and that neighbors were outside screaming and yelling. Kids were running outside in the grassy area separating two apartment quadruplexes buildings, including hers. 
That night, while a few children were playing basketball, Lorenz came outside to throw a pair of roller skates at them, hitting one on the feet, according to the report. When Owens then knocked on the door, Lorenz claims that Owens threatened to kill her. According to Sheriff's Timeline, Lawrence called the department at 8.54 p.m. on the night of the shooting to say kids were threatening her and trespassing. She had previously placed no trespassing signs in the grassy areas, despite those being shared areas and not part of her rental. Lawrence said in court she doesn't own the property. Many details about the case remain unclear, such as the owner of a red t-shirt that says she slays, this means war, which was found at the scene, according to the report. While deputies were on their way, more calls came into 911 about shots heard in the same area. Um, at 9.04 p.m., one of Owen's children called 911 to say his mother had been shot. According to the timeline, Lawrence also called again saying she had shot a woman through a front door. Deputies arrived about three minutes later to find Owens lying on the ground. She was pronounced dead at a hospital at about a half an hour later. Lawrence claimed that Owens banged on the door so hard everything started shaking and she thought the door was going to come off. And that she panicked and said to herself, oh my G-O-D, I don't say that word because I don't ever say the Lord's name in vain. But she's really going to kill me this time. That's when Lawrence fired a single round from her 380 caliber handgun. The port says, noting that Lawrence also had a second handgun in the home. Lorenz advised that she purchased the firearm for protection after an altercation with the, vic um, with the victim. During a news conference Wednesday afternoon, the victim's family, friends, and community leaders joined civil rights attorney Ben Crump. Isn't that... Isn't that um, oh, I thought it was wanting me to do something. I forgot to close it down. I was trying to add a photo. He called on the state attorney's office to zealously prosecute the shooter. Crump, along with Owen's mother, multiple neighbors noted during the news conference that the feud the sheriff spoke was between Lawrence and neighborhood children. Neighbors um, said Lawrence frequently called the children vile names when they played in the grassy area outside her home. Authorities had delayed her arrest for several days while looking into a possible stand-your-ground claim. Detectives have since said that Lawrence's actions are not justifiable under Florida law. The sheriff has said that since January 2021, deputies responded to at least a half a dozen complaints between Owens and Lawrence in um, Ocala, I think that's how you pronounce it, Ocala, Florida, or, I'm gonna have to see how you pronounce it, but, let's see, ooh, I want to read about, um, Uran Vandersloot, <clears throat> yes, yes, it's this, this. appearance for Johan Vandersloot, the prime Johan. suspect in the disappearance of Natalie Holloway. He's facing federal fraud and this extortion was a charges. ABC's Elwin Lopez was in that courtroom. Joined us now with the latest. Elwin, good morning. 
page in a good morning. Vandersloot is waking up under U.S. Marshal custody and will continue to do so until his trial. I sat just a few feet away from him as he made that first appearance here at this courthouse behind me. No cameras were allowed inside, but also there was Natalie Holloway's mother, Beth. She was watching as a 35-year-old pleaded not guilty to those extortion and wire fraud charges. Vandersloot started out by choosing not to use an interpreter in court, telling the judge that his English is perfect and that he didn't need one. Right after the three-minute arraignment, I caught up with Beth Hallway's spokesperson. He told me that she's relieved that Vandersloot is here in the U.S. after such a long process. Now, the Dutch national is accused of extorting tens of thousands of dollars from Beth for information leading to the Alabama teen's body. Natalie, who disappeared in 2005 during a high school graduation trip to Aruba, was never found. Authorities say he was the last person to see Natalie alive. Vandersloot was never charged in her disappearance and has maintained his innocence over the years. And guys, if convicted here, he could face up to 40 years in an American prison. But first, he has to go back to Peru to finish a sentence on an unrelated case, the murder of Stephanie Flores before returning here to the United States in 2038. All right, Elwin, thank you. Hi, everyone. George Stephanopoulos here. So, um, so far that seems like he's only being charged with, um, the extortion case. More than a decade after being in, uh, indicted by the United States for wire fraud and extortion, Garan Vandersloot was arraigned in Alabama. Joran Vandersloot, who has been linked to the 2005 disappearance of an American teenager, Natalie Holloway, pleaded not guilty to extortions and fraud charges in court in Birmingham, Alabama on Friday after he was temporarily extradited from Peru to the United States. At his appearance at the Hugo L. Black United States Courthouse, Mr. Vandersloot spoke only to decline the services of a Dutch translator and to acknowledge that he understood the charges against him. He pleaded not guilty through his lawyer, Kevin Butler, a federal public defender. Mr. Vandersloot, 35, had been serving a prison sentence in Peru where he pleaded um, guilty to the 2010 murder of a 21-year-old Peruvian student, Stephanie Flores. Last month, the Peruvian authorities announced that they would temporarily allow his extradition to ensure that he finally faces justice in the United States. Peru was very instrumental in this process. Um, and Natalie's mother... Um, a representative for... Okay, oh, it said George Seymour, representative for Beth Holloway, Natalie's mother. I missed that sentence. I had this, I had scrolled down too far. They did not have to allow this process to go forward. Around the time of his arrest in the Flores case, Mr. Vandersloot was indicted by a federal grand jury in Alabama on charges of trying to extort Miss Holloway for $250,000 for information how her daughter died and where was her body, which was never, you know, it's never been found. He accepted initial payment of 25000 in an FBI sting operation and gave what he knew was false information, the authorities said at the time. Natalie Holloway was 18 when she disappeared after a night out in Aruba on May 30, 2005. 
during a trip with her Alabama high school class. A judge declared her legally dead in 2012, but the unsolved case has generated public interest for years. Now, 18 years later, the wheels of justice have finally begun to turn for our family, and we're getting our long-awaited day in court, Miss Holloway said in a statement. With the felony arraignment complete, the prosecution of this criminal case has officially begun. Ms. Holloway added that Mr. Vandersloot's not guilty plea was not disheartening to us and that she was confident federal prosecutors would gain a conviction. L- lawyers for the Holloway family expected the case to go to trial, but the timing remains unclear. While today's arraignment represents a significant step forward, we must remember that the pursuit of justice is far from over. John Q. Kelly, a lawyer for Beth Holloway, said in a statement, Mr. Vandersloot was being held at the Shelby County Jail in Alabama as of Friday. If he is found guilty in the extortion case, he will first return to Peru to complete the rest of his 28-year sentence for the murder of Ms. Flores, who was killed by strangulation before returning to the United States for prison time. Now, maybe in um, that time frame, hey, how are you doing? I appreciate you stopping in. Now, I would be really um, shocked that during this time frame that he comes back um, to the United States that they don't try to get, you know, enough evidence to file charge on far, file charges on him for Natalie um, Holloway's murder. Because it's alleged that Stephanie Flores found um, information or evidence of um, Natalie Holloway being on his computer. And that is why he allegedly um, killed Stephanie Flores. He still has a long time that he has to do in the Peru um, prison, so, which is a good thing, which will provide them enough time still to hopefully get enough evidence on him to hopefully charge him with Natalie's murder. Um, Unfortunately, with him telling so many different stories... We may not ever know the truth about what happened to Natalie that night. So, based on what Fox News reported 11 hours ago, um, it's saying that a psychologist is saying Uran Vandersloot toyed with Natalie Holloway's family for years. Uh, he left Peru to head to the United States Thursday morning to face justice in a trial that can hopefully shed some light on charges involving fraud and extortion after the mysterious disappearance of 18-year-old Alabama high school student Natalie Holloway. The 35-year-old Dutch killer remains a primary suspect in the 2005 disappearance and suspected murder case that remains enshrouded in mystery and has dominated headlines for decades. That is what Fox recently reported 11 hours ago. You guys might hear my dogs barking because they like the box. It it, it is a very complex case. 
I am hoping that Natalie Hallway gets justice. If it's true that uh, what everybody's saying, <clears throat> if it's if it's true what everybody's saying that Uran's dad, you know, helped him, possibly allegedly dispose of Natalie Hallway. We may not, you know, find out what happened because his dad's no longer alive. Let's see. I'm glad that he's going to be finally facing charges for extortion. I was wondering how long it was going to take the United States to file charges, knowing they had the evidence to file charges on him a long time ago. That was back in 2005 when she disappeared. Also, I want to talk about this case that I've been following for a long time. I don't know if anybody um, has heard about it, but um, <clears throat> it's the disappearance of Eric Lee Franks, which was last seen on March 14, 2011. I'm actually in the group that um, his mother created, and I've been following it for a while. This is a really sad um, case. Let me see if I can get this image. Because I want to put his photo up. I'm going to see if I can eventually get his mom um, on m my podcast. So she can talk about the case. And tell everybody what happened to her son as well. I'm um, trying to find the best photo to, to use. Oh, I'll just put this m missing photo. Hold on. This is a really sad... Um, I'm going to enlarge this. Alrighty. Yes, it's really sad. He's a, he's from Michigan. Um, they're investigating into um, his disappearance, which his name is Eric Lee Franks. And it's over a, a decade old. The bottom of my foot is itching, which I hate when that happens. Okay, so he was 38 years old whenever, um, I believe that whenever he found out they had his daughter, but, um, I'll talk more about it real quick. My, I'm having to itch the bottom of my foot. It's sort of itching real quick. So they say in the 38 year old, um, Eric Franks had two big dreams in life, according to his brother-in-law, Chad Boss. 
One was he dreamed of working in Hollywood and he actually moved out to California for a while and worked on some small sets. He told Dateline the other one was to have a family. Chad was married to Eric's younger sister, Beth. It was just the two of them, Chad said. Eric and Beth's father was a minister. They had grown up in different places. Chad had also told Dateline that Eric Franks spent most of their childhood in the South. The majority of it was in Tennessee. Chad met Beth while the Franks lived in Nashville, Tennessee in December of 1995. Eric was older than Beth by about four years. He said he met Eric while he was dating his sister. Their family went out to dinner and he was invited. He didn't remember being too nervous, but that there's always the concern of just how protective an older brother is going to be when meeting his little sister's boyfriend for the first time. Whenever he first met him, he was on the quiet side. You kind of had to get to know him before he would open up and talk a lot. Chad and Beth got married two years later in December of 1997. In an email, Chad told Dateline that Eric was in their wedding party and stood with Beth. Eric lived in Tupelo, Mississippi for quite some time, according to Chad. After Eric and Beth's father died in 2006, their mother, Joanne, moved to Ohio, where Beth and Chad were living. Eric eventually followed during the 2008 downturn. Chad and Eric had been brother-in-laws for 14 years when Eric vanished. Chad, who was the family spokesperson, told Dateline he believes Eric's dream to have a family may have unfortunately been connected to his disappearance. That dream kind of wound up playing into part of what happened to him, they think. He told Dateline that in October 2010, Eric moved to Saginaw, Michigan after he had reconnected with his ex-girlfriend, Kendra Firmingham, on social media in May 2010. He figured out that she actually had his biological child and he was never aware of that before. He was in contact with the mother, his former girlfriend. The mother was, you know, expressing that she and her husband were having, you know, things weren't going so well. Kendra Firmingham was married to a man named John Carnes. But Chad told Dateline that Eric soon moved to Michigan under the belief that he and Kendra were going to get back together and be a happy little family. About a week after Eric arrived in Michigan, he met his daughter, Emily. He was there for a few months and did get to meet his daughter and they had a relationship together. And he had a relationship um, with the mother before he disappeared. Chad said that in a few months after Eric was living in Michigan, he would always stay in touch with his family back in Ohio. I mean, we guys are kind of bad about checking in with our moms, Chad said with a laugh. But, you know, every few weeks, I mean, she always knew where he was. She always knew what he was doing. Chad told Dateline that Eric mainly stayed in contact by phone and occasionally by email. So when Eric went quiet for a couple of weeks in late winter of 2011, the Franks family knew something was wrong. Joanne, which is his mother's name, hadn't heard from him. She would call and leave messages, uh, he said. 
He wouldn't call back. Chad explained that Eric told his family that he was going to be moving to a new house with Kendra and that the cell service wasn't going to be great. So the family wanted, uh, the family waited, hoping to get back in touch with Eric. The last day that Joanne and another friend of Eric's heard his voice was March 10th. Then in months following, Joanne received some emails from her son through the summer about once a month. She would get something that was supposedly from him. Even at that time, especially looking back, she was like, that just doesn't sound like Eric. Chad said that by November of 2011, Joanne decided to report Eric missing to the authorities. She finally decided, you know, I think something's wrong, Chad told Dateline. She basically sent a message and said, unless I hear your voice, I'm going to the police. She didn't hear his voice. So she reported um, her only son missing to police. Dateline spoke with Detective Sergeant Bill Arndt of the Michigan State Police about Eric's disappearance. Detective Arndt told Dateline that Eric's mother, Joanne, had called the Bridgeport Township Police Department in the area Eric had been staying before officially reported him missing. She called the Bridgeport Police Department and said, Hey, you... No, can somebody go check for Eric, Detective Art said. However, the detective said there is no record of a wellness check actually taking place. She called Archbold Police Department, Detective Art said. This was Joanne's local police department in Archbold, Ohio. Her official police report is November 14, 2011. The detective told Dateline that for 16 months, Eric's case passed through different departments before landing with the Michigan State Police. Chad also told Dateline that the Archbold Police Department was nothing but helpful and on the ball, even though they were so far away from where Eric lived. Chad said once Eric was reported in mid-November 2011, the Archbold Police jumped into action they contacted the Saginaw Police Department, Bridgeport Township Police Department, and eventually the case uh, passed to Buena Vista Township Police Department, where Kendra Birmingham lived in December 2011. And then Detective Art said it's almost two years before they ask us to help. The detective said that the changing of hands has negatively affected Eric's case. It's a detriment, he said. We don't get involved in the case until March of 2013. Evidence that may have been readily discoverable in 2011 may, lo- may no longer been so two years later. When investigators began looking into Eric's case, they found that he had been staying at a place called Miller's Motel. They determined he was last seen on March 14, 2011 when he paid for his week's rent. So Eric had been staying there a couple of months prior to him being reported missing. The detective told Dateline, the owner of the motel, Dan Patel, was one of the last people who saw Eric. Eric paid him for a week's stay. The detective said, at that type of motel, you typically pay a week in advance. Detective Art told Dateline that payments in the last uh, paper record of Eric When asked if there were any security cameras at the motel, the detective replied, no, no, there probably still isn't security footage there. 
According to Eric's brother-in-law, Chad, the motel owner, Dan Patel, noticed that Eric's car was gone that week and that the lights were on in his room, but didn't look like anyone was inside. Then the motel owner said he observed a woman cleaning out of Eric's room. Um... This woman turned out to be Kendra Firmingham. Detective Art confirmed that Dan Patel reported to the police that he did not see Eric cleaning out the motel room. Dan mentions that he saw only Kendra cleaning out the motel. The detective um, said that Eric wasn't there. This occurred about a week after the motel owner last seen Eric in person. Detective confirmed that police asked Kendra about this at the time. Kendra's story was that they, she went to the hotel to help Eric clean it out, he said. He told Dateline that Kendra told officials that Eric wanted to go to California, so she helped him clean his motel room out. The detective said that the police then checked Eric's cell phone activity. There's some outgoing calls after the day he was last seen. According to Chad, there were many calls made from his brother-in-law's phone in the weeks after he was last seen to auto repair shops, to Kendra's phone, to a general surgeon, to salvage yards, auto parts, auto parts stores, a car dealer, a dentist's office where both Kendra and Firmington and John Carnes were patients, but Eric was not a patient there. That's very suspicious. Detective um, confirmed that officials were able to trace back a few of the calls from Eric's phone. The one to the auto parts or auto service station, he said. And there was a call to the dentist. And I think there was one more that they were absolutely able to trace back that related to Kendra. The detective also confirmed that those uh, calls took place after Eric's disappearance in March 2011. But there were other calls that they weren't able to verify who or what or where they came from. Detective told Dateline in an email that the last outgoing from Aaron's phone was the Saginaw County Animal Control on May 6th in 2011. The previous investigators did a lot of work on the case, the detective told Dateline. Our agency put it out to Crime Stoppers. Eric's case was submitted to NAMUS and other National Missing Persons website. They did check uh, for all or any credit or Social Security stuff that they could come up with. In an email, Detective Arndt details... All the searches conducted for Eric throughout the years. He said that they searched local scrapyards, canvassed the neighborhood, utilized aerial searches, and sent out cadaver dogs many times. Eric was nowhere to be found. They never found any property that belonged to Eric, the detective said. Um, they said they never found anything. In an email to Dateline, Detective Arndt said that Kendra told investigators that Eric took his personal belongings when he left for California. Chad believes someone else was using Eric's phone. We have reason to think that someone had possession of his phone because that's how these emails were being sent. Referring to the messages Eric's mother had received after he was last seen, he wasn't talking like himself, and he wasn't spelling like himself, and so on. So it's pretty clear to us that it wasn't him. While Detective Art doesn't remember seeing the emails personally, he noted that there were no way to verify who sent them. 
in September of 2012, Eric's family put up a missing posters for him and reported his car, a 2001 Chevy Malibu with Ohio plates stolen. Officials executed, uh, executed many searches for Eric's car, too. The detectives, they did everything they could think of. They went to local scrap yards looking for the car, thinking that maybe somebody demolished the car. They did some searches right away, some cadaver dog searches right away. The detectives said the cadaver dogs were used at both Miller's Motel and the property where Kendra Firmingham and John Carnes live. They searched that house. They did quite a bit of work, he said, but, get it, but again, nothing was found. Chad told Dateline that Eric's hotel room was searched too. They'd done a limited amount of checking or processing on that room years and years later. But those hotel rooms get painted and repainted and cleaned and recleaned so many times, he said. Chad said that there was no evidence of anything happening to Eric in that motel room. Detective Arndt confirmed investigators were not able to recover any evidence at the motel and recalled that the motel owner had just changed the carpeting at the motel. At one point, detective told Dateline an eyewitness came forward and said they saw John Carnes threaten Eric's life outside the motel. The gentleman was interviewed, he said. He said that's what happened, that John was threatening Eric during an argument or something. The detectives said that they asked Carnes about this altercation or interaction, but noted that Carnes won't say anything at all to officials. The detective told authorities um, have Eric, they have Eric Dental's records on file just in case. They ended up getting some dental records, he said, in case you know there are another missing person nationally that wound up missing that couldn't be identified. The detective confirmed foul play suspected in Eric's disappearance and that the Michigan State Police consider Kendra Firmingham and John Carnes persons of interest in the case. However, um, he noted there's never been enough evidence to make an arrest. It's all circumstantial. There's no good evidence. The detective also told Dateline that officials confronted Kendra many times, but nothing ever came of those interviews. Polygraphs were never taken. They were offered, um, they said, according to the detective, in either 2014 or 2015, the Michigan State Police uh, presented Eric's case to the prosecutor and suggested charges. There just wasn't enough evidence, he said. In 2016, Kendra Firmingham died, reportedly of cancer. Um, Dateline has been unable to reach Kendra's husband, John Carnes, for comment. The mother of Eric says there's a possibility that she may even faked her death, uh, you know, after me being in the group a, a long time. But she feels that, you know, there's a possibility she could have even done that. Um, Detective Arn confirmed that Kendra Firmingham was directly asked if she killed Eric. The detective said that her statement in response was, oh, G-O-D, no, I don't like saying the Lord's name in vain. He also confirmed that Kendra continued to deny any involvement with Eric's disappearance. According to the detective, Kendra's husband, John Carnes, also asked if he had anything to do with Eric's disappearance, murder, or to help dispose of his body. 
Uh, Carnes categorically denied any involvement in the case. Eric's daughter is not talking. And from what I read from uh, the Facebook group, that she previously had the same type of cancer that her mom had, but she's recovered from it. Dateline also reached out to Kendra and Eric's daughter, Emily, which who I was just speaking about, who is now an adult but did not receive a response. Detective Art told Dateline that Emily was interviewed by police, didn't have much to say, but she was interviewed. Evidently, if they did anything, they didn't do anything around her. She didn't know much is what they're saying. Chad also told Dateline the same thing about his niece. They did speak to her when she was a minor and, you know, she was home with her parents. She claimed to not know anything, Chad said. She did admit to having met Eric, having done, having done things with Eric. They went roller skating, I remember. They went to a mall bowling, I think. Eric's case is slowly, uh, is slowly grew cold. The family held out hopes that maybe if they found Eric's car, which actually belonged to his mother, Joanne, they'd find Eric. The car was also nowhere to be found. Part of the way they were hoping they would be able to track Eric down was to be able to find the car. Because the car was titled to Joanne, there was no way for him to legally sell the car because he didn't have a title and that there was no way for him to renew the plates when the time came to renew because the car wasn't registered to him the police also had always told them the car is going to turn up the car is going to turn up that's how we're going to find out you know where eric is nine years after eric disappeared the car didn't turn up when um they never found his car until 2020 the detective told dateline in 2020, the family got information from an internet sleuth that there was a hit on the car, on Eric's car, the detective said. What happened was the vehicle was parked in a garage in Saginaw. The owner died and they sold the house or, you know, the car, the house, the contents at auction. The person who bought the car at auction took it to be inspected. When he did that, it hit, you know, it made a hit on Carfax, the detective said, referring the vehicle identification um, VIN number. Chad told Dateline the story as well. He said a criminal justice student named Miranda Boffman in California had seen a story about Eric's disappearance on a TV show. She was aware because of her criminal justice studies that you can put a VIN in on Carfax and get email alerts at any time a record pops up on that vehicle. In fall of 2020, about three years after she put in the VIN number on Carfax, Miranda got a notification. She gets um, a notification on August 31st of 2020 that the car had been given an oil change. She didn't even remember that she had done that. And she was like, what car is this? And she was racking her brain trying to remember, you know, what car she was getting notified for. Chad said Miranda finally put two and two together and reached out to Eric's family in Ohio. And a message to Dateline, Miranda said, I'm thrilled to hear Eric's case is receiving renewed attention. I hope this article encourages anyone with... Any information to come forward. It's been 11 years. It's been over 11 years now because this, you know, article's old. It's time for Eric to finally come home and for his family to get the answers and justice.
they deserve. Chad and his wife, Beth, just happened to be in Michigan on vacation when Joanne called to tell them the news. We were like, well, we can stop at that place, Chad said. And I kept thinking to myself, this is probably, you know, a typo or something. It wasn't a typo. When Chad and Beth got to where the car was worked on and explained why they were there, an employee told them that they remembered the car, so they got permission to tell us, you know, the owner of the car, which turned out to be another car dealer, Chad said. Chad and Beth raced over to the dealership. Um, he said he was expecting the car was going to be sitting out on the parking lot, you know, something like for sale. He said they explained the story again, this time to the owner of the dealership. I'm so, so I'm like, is the car still here? And he said, yes, sitting in the next room over, Chad told Dateline. We got up and walked around the corner and there was Eric's car. Chad, who was a car salesman himself, said the car looked just like the day he sold it to Joanne. I mean, it's sitting there all cleaned up and shiny and like a time machine, Chad said. Chad said the owner of the car dealership had bought Eric's car from an estate sale. The estate was that of a man named Gerald Rutledge. Gerald was a person who was basically an invalid, which couldn't leave his house. Now it gets even more interesting. So the detective confirmed this information as well. And they believe that the car um, being in Rutledge's garage was not incidental. It was not just something that was randomly done and had a connection to Kendra. Chad told Dateline that before Gerald Rutledge died, Kendra had been his caregiver. The car had been hidden in his garage <clears throat> and he didn't go out to see it. So he probably didn't even know that it was there and it's been there all those years just sitting in the garage chad said that they called the police with the news as soon as they identified the car they immediately called the michigan state police talked to the detective and was in charge that was in charge of eric's case at the time he dropped everything and came out and you know they took possession of the vehicle and processed it the detective confirmed the Michigan State Police processed his car. The new owner was super cooperative. They ended up towing the car down to the lab and having it processed for any evidence. The detective told Dateline the only thing that came out that was there was a spot of blood on the driver's seat. When the blood was tested, the results came back as belonging to Eric. It wasn't very large. It was just a of blood but it did come back to be Eric's the detective said the detective told Dateline that officials did another search after the car was found they went back to where the car was actually parked the garage where the car was parked he said what they found was a fresh spot of concrete in the driveway or in the garage so the investigators dug that up dug the cement out with an excavator and did a cadaver search but they didn't find anything there. They searched the whole property and they found nothing. In an email, the detective said that there was another set of cadaver dog searches in 2022. Uh, both an abandoned house in Saginaw and the area around Miller's Motel in Bridgeport Township. Again, nothing um, was found. The detective said that at this point, one of three things is needed to close the case. Either to find Eric 
find additional evidence or have someone come forward uh, with information, it will always be open or just a, a cold case. He said we have zero. Uh, they said they have zero reason to think that Eric is still living. Chad um, said of his brother-in-law's fate, he never in his life had been out of touch with his family. Eric's mother, Joanne, runs the Facebook page Finding Eric Lee Franks, which I'll place that in um, the chat as well. If anybody wants to go follow it. It's very sad, but I want to get the mother on my podcast soon so she can tell her story. I've been in her the Facebook group and... I've been re you know, reading the updates and everything, trying to keep up with the case for the last several years, hoping that her son, you know, son's found or she gets justice. But now with Kendra being deceased, the only way is to prosecute the husband and he's not talking and they're not bringing him in for additional questioning or filing charges on him. See, she said that Eric would be 50 years old today, which obviously he'll be older now because this article's old. He was six, one, six foot one inch tall, 175 pounds with brown eyes. His hair is black at the time of his disappearance. Detective Art told Dateline in an email that the Michigan State Police just began a cold case investigation team and that at some point this case will be re-examined for further leads and investigation. And they're telling everybody with information should call the Michigan State Police at 810-733-9380 or the Missing Persons Unit at 855-642-4847, which is very sad. I, I do personally believe that Kendra and her husband did have something to do with it. I personally feel that they may have not done it around the daughter because obviously if the daughter would have witnessed anything, they would be afraid that they would have to do something to their daughter. But the mother, you know, Kendra, she's dead now. She died of cancer. I think it's like breast cancer, I believe it was. The last uh, update was on April 7th where she um, posted a Spotify link, episode 14, The Disappearance of Eric Lee Franks. It's a really sad situation because it's been several years. I've been following this case for a long, long time. They're only offering a... Crime Stoppers is only offering a $1,000 reward. And this happened back in 2011. It's really sad. So on March 3rd, she posted, It's been 12 years since Eric disappeared in Saginaw, Michigan. We know Eric was murdered. His remains have not been found, but his car was found in September 2020. We owe a debt of gratitude to Rondi Boffman, a college student in Sacramento, California, who is studying criminal justice. She took an interest in Eric's case, put in a Carfax on his car, and much later received a message that an oil change had been done on the car. She notified me. I let my children know and that they followed up on Rondi's tip. They located the car. They contacted MSP, who came to pick up the car for forensic testing. The link to the story of the car being found is below. There was a search done by MSP on the property where the car had been hidden 
in a garage owned by Gerald Rutledge, an elderly, wealthy man who hired Kendra Page Firmingham Carnes as his caregiver. Had Kendra been alive when the car was found, she surely would have been arrested. However, she has no way acted alone. The case is still open. Hopefully one day others would be brought to justice, meaning her husband. With Rondi's permission, I am sharing her graduation pics where she put Eric's picture and information on her graduation cap. She graduated with a BS in criminal justice May 21st, 2022. I feel sure she will have a successful career in criminal justice. In addition to having Eric's picture on her cap, she had a picture of her grandfather who passed away when she was only nine. She only had a pic of her close friend, Stephen, who had passed away, and his son. Randy, I might be pronouncing her name. It might be Randy. I don't know. It's R-H-A-N-D-Y, so it could be Randy or Ronnie. I don't know. I'd have to ask her. <laughs> Continues to keep in touch with me, and I appreciate her. So I'm going to see if she wants to come on um, one of my future podcasts and discuss um, the disappearance of her son. Yes, she has been amazing, strong, and I am completely shocked that she's been able to hang on this long, knowing the fact that she's operating this Facebook page all by herself, trying to find out information on who killed her son, knowing that the husband's still out there on the loose, knowing that he possibly helped Kendra kill her son. It's very sad. I I do believe that she and her husband both both worked together and unalived him. There has been, um, let me see what episode there was made. There was made, I think it was on ID. I'm going to check and see. But there was an episode that was made about his case as well. Back in of October 23rd of 2022, the family appreciates Dateline for this written interview. It also is on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Some small details are incorrect, but basically it is the story in a nutshell. Someone posted 26 weeks ago, where is Kendra's husband? He should be interrogated like crazy. She said he has lived in Florida since he, Kendra, and others in their circle fled there when he reported when they reported Eric missing. He has been questioned by the Florida police, but of course he has denied his involvement and laid it on his dead wife. I have no doubt whatsoever that she was deeply involved, but she has no way acted alone. I guarantee that um, she didn't act alone, knowing that there's witnesses saying that he threatened to kill him. I'm hoping that 
before his mother passes away that she gets to be at peace and get justice for her son. Find out what they did with him. Okay, so it's called disappear. It's called disappeared episode about Eric's disappearance. I'm gonna see where it's. I don't know if it's I on ID. Hold on, I'll even put this in the chat if anybody wants to click this and read it. I guess it's about the car. Yes, that's about the the car when they found the car. I'm trying to find out the episode. I think it was on ID. I watched it a long time ago. She set this Facebook group up a long time ago. She's been operating it herself for a long time. I don't know exactly how old his mother is right now, but knowing that he's 50... um. He w you know, over well, actually over 50 now, but she would obviously be older, so. Yes, she's been suffering um, for a very long time. I'm going to see if I can find. Oh, she's even got a GoFundMe up. Oh, it says the campaign's not found. So evidently she had it up, but it's not found because I checked her website and that's where it's um, following. I'm going to have to see where the actual episode is. Videos. Emotional video was taken. Um, I am the natural mother of... This is her talking. Who's this her talking? Alexis I thought that was his mom. She went missing at 15, excuse me, 14 years old, almost 15. After this video was taken at 2015 Missing in Michigan event at the GM Renaissance Center. It's Kathy Terrican. I cannot pronounce her last name, but I'll type it in chat. I pray to find her, and I pray for everybody here that they find the people that they've lost because it will turn you inside out. And this is my friend Joanne. She's the daughter Joanne of was up there with her. We're playing together. She's talking about her son. We adopted my son when he was five weeks old. And uh, when he was 38, he came to Michigan to meet a biological daughter that he just found he had. He never had children. And I tried to get him to do DNA. And he said, Mom, she's a female me. And I have to agree, she looks like him. But there was never any DNA done. But we believe he was most likely killed by the man that raised my son's daughter as his own child. There's an eyewitness that has come to the, he was disappeared in Saginaw, Michigan, uh, came to the Michigan State Police and told them, I saw and heard that man threatened to shoot there. And we're waiting on the police to question that man and ask him to give his side of the story. He fled this was posted back in 2015. Family. Uh, the girl that told my son, I had your baby when we were teenagers and never told my son about it, moved to Florida with She's the daughter talking about Kendra. and her husband. And uh, so we, Kathy and I became friends on Facebook because we both have missing children. And we met last year here at Missing in Michigan along with Carl Copeland who deals with uh, 
with the missing and drawing pictures. You think you think the clay? No, the clay, I just the clay, pictures. Just, yeah. But he does a great job. I see it on Facebook a lot. And he solves a, and has recently solved the missing the first dough entered into babies. He solved it. He found it. She gets to go home. So if you see a flyer of a missing person, please share it. Share it on your Facebook. Go to these pages. We need you. Both of our children have Facebook pages. Um, Derek Lee Franks and I put out his flyers. This is the IMBM. I am DB, sorry, I don't know what I was thinking. Of the documentary, it's called The the One That Got Away. It was um, aired May 28, 2017. So so she's in Florida and the police need to question her. We're waiting on the Michigan State Police to go question her or get her extradited back for questioning, along with the man that threatened to kill my son. And in my case, the person that I believe, in my opinion, is the primary POI, refuses to cooperate, will not help look for the child that he so desperately needed to adopt. Thanks. That is a really bad story. So, um, if anybody wants to join the group, there is um, 9.7k followers in it. But I am in that group, and um, it's sad because of the fact that the mom has had to suffer this long. Without getting justice for her son, knowing that she knows who committed the crime. But um, I'm wanting to bring his mom um, on my podcast. In the near future, so then she can talk about um, her disappearance, you know, the disappearance of her son. And I check it at least once a month to see if there's been any updates. But the last update was in April. Let's see what this is about. Oh, wait. Okay, so if anybody wants to listen to a podcast episode about it. Christy Kramer at Michigan Unsolved, the true crime podcast. Which I'll be uploading my podcast episode up after this too. So it'll be up on um, Spotify later. I'll have two um, episodes I'll have to upload up there. But... 
Eric Lee Franks was adopted as an infant and he thought he was loved beyond measure. He always craved something more in 2011 at 38 years old. He was found out he was a father. His former girlfriend, who he considered the one that got away, had moved 16 years before had his before um she had his daughter he immediately moved hundreds of miles to meet his 15 year old daughter but a few short months later he would disappear with no trace so that will be something that um i'll probably want to listen to again because it's been a while since i listened to it Unfortunately, not all cold cases get solved, even if you feel like you know who 100% may be involved with the crime. Until he confesses to somebody or they find evidence to of a witness claiming that they saw him around Eric at the time that they disappeared. Unfortunately, he may not ever get justice and that's what's sad i'm hoping that he does no no they they just basically 100 percent believed since she looked like her, him and kendra confessed and said that she belonged to him that's the thing that was that's the reason why they got into an argument um, I believe because of the fact that the, the husband did not want Eric coming to take over being the father of Emily. And I believe that he must have got jealous because maybe Kendra was trying to see them both or something or I don't I don't know. These are just uh, alleged you know allegations that i'm thinking of because of the fact base of what chad said that they were going to move together so maybe she lied to eric and said that they were going to move together and it got her husband mad and jealous because he found out about it and caused them to get into argument because obviously he doesn't want his family to be taken from him exactly that's what that's what i feel i think that he wanted him out of the way and was involved and maybe Kendra knew about it and helped him. Or maybe Kendra like set up the whole thing after they got into an argument. I don't I don't know. Anything's possibility. Like I would love to bring um Eric's mom on and to ask her if she knows about that. Like, does she know that um her husband I mean, does her husband know that she was trying to plan on moving in with Eric? Could that be a reason why he was allegedly involved with killing her son? Like, these are questions that I want to ask his mom. Because it could be possible that he overheard a conversation between Kendra and him or read text messages or, you know, something could have happened that triggered the whole situation to where he threatened to kill um, Eric and he wanted him out of the way. Because he considers Emily as his daughter, even though Eric's the father of her. So 
So his birthday is on September 18, 2022. She says this is when she did a post about his birthday saying they'd be 50. So that was back in 2022. So it'd be about 51. That was sad. Back in 2011. He did get questioned, but he denied that he had any involvement and he put it on his dead wife's grave that he had no involvement. So the police didn't do anything further. I don't know if he may have confessed to somebody. It is very sad. It may be possible that he never confessed the crime to anybody and him and his wife agreed to take it to their grave, which obviously now she's deceased. What is sad is the daughter got the same type of cancer that the mother got, but she ended up surviving from it. See, and back in 2021, in December, she said um, Eric's family was notified of the possible identification of the remains found over three years ago. In the beginning, we were notified because of the possibility of the body being Eric, but it seems it is not my dogs. They're saying, could a mysterious plane crash be related to Saginaw County Bones Discovery? Let me see if this plays. First at six, new developments in a more than three-year-old Saginaw County mystery. Are the remains found in a wooded area, that of a pilot whose plane crashed in Canada? Those remains were found in September of 2018 in southwest Saginaw County. It was last month that we told you new DNA testing indicated this person may have been of Eastern Asian descent. So, Terry, how does a plane crash in Canada fit into this new theory? Yeah, Angie, that plane crashed in March of 2017 in Ontario, north of the Upper Peninsula. Now, the body of the pilot was not found at the wreckage site, and investigators believe he may have jumped to his death early. A flight that... That is something that I was wondering as well. ...sign is where an almost intact human skeleton was found in Saginaw County's Chapin Township so in the I believe that the mother thought maybe there was a they possibility that this... Too, ...including a black boot was and a Calvin Klein belt found. with a 32-inch waist. Ever since the discovery, Janice Searles, who did not want to appear on camera, and other people who live in the rural area have wondered, who died here? And everybody wonders why, who, what happened. No answers. It's possible the mystery is connected to the mysterious last flight of Jin Rong. It was on March 15, 2017, when the University of Michigan doctoral student rented a Cessna and flew out of an Ann Arbor airport at around 7 that night. The plane ran out of gas as it crashed a few hours later in a wooded area near Manitowage, Ontario, north of Lake Superior. Authorities believe the 27-year-old Rong, described as an experienced pilot, had put the plane in autopilot mode and a flight plan indicated he was traveling to Harbor Springs. A plane traveling north from Ann Arbor could possibly fly over Saginaw County. Authorities believe Rong jumped from the plane at some point, ending his life. An anthropologist who first examined the Saginaw County remains said the bones were so badly broken that it was possible the person fell from an airplane. 
Now that DNA testing has determined the bones are possibly from someone of Eastern Asian descent, Saginaw County investigators are looking into the possibility it's wrongs remains that were found in Chapin Township. Janice Searles is skeptical of this new theory. I don't believe that for a second. Not at all. If that plain theory proves fact, I'd be amazed. Yeah, we reported in 2017 that a... So that's really sad. She said that she wishes it had been Eric since we know he was murdered. I hope it does help someone to have answers. So every holiday she posts in the Facebook group. Is she even... um? Reminds hunters even when they're out hunting to keep their eyes open for human remains. It's really sad that she's begging, you know, for somebody to basically come forward with information and nobody's came forward. So every holiday that has passed. Oh, here's another um, podcast that someone did. Eric Frank's part to the love triangle. That's what I was thinking, that maybe there's a love triangle and her husband found out about it. And wanted him out of the way. Maybe it is possible that he did it and never told Kendra, but Kendra was cleaning out the hotel, so she had to have known. And she took the car. Maybe she didn't help do it, but maybe he told her. I don't I don't know. Anything's a possibility now knowing she's deceased. Oh, and here's the first episode. I'm really hoping that before she even passes that she gets justice for her son because this has to be really hard on her. I I agree. I personally 100% agree with you. I I feel that it was a crime of passion. The husband knew that he was there to see his daughter and to him he felt like that that was his daughter that's his wife and Eric to his knowledge he thought those two were you know him and Kendra were going to get back together and move in together you know maybe she could have told her husband that she was leaving him maybe she didn't maybe the whole thing was a setup. You know, these are questions that I would definitely like to ask his mom. Does, you know, does the husband, because since the the husband's alive, is he aware that um, Eric and Kendra allegedly had plans to move in together with each other? Because if so, that would be enough evidence to bring him in. Say, hey, we know that... You know, you were aware that they were back together. You made threat. You know, they were going to get back together. You made threats. We have this witness to prove that you made threats. And then they can start investigating him for 
you know, killing him over a crime of passion, which I feel that could be done. I definitely believe that there is enough to investigate because there is a motive. I definitely believe that there's evidence to bring him in to investigate. Um, someone even asked two years ago, can people donate for testing for a specific case? I don't know. I thought if necessary, we could raise money for the testing. There are only two missing people in Saginaw. As far as I know that these remains might be and one is Eric and the other is Aaron Idol. I will see what I can find out from Terry Camp who speaks with the sheriff about these cases and that was two years ago. And maybe that'll be something that I can talk to his mother about. Like, you know, once once I do get to talk to her, she does come on my podcast. That if there is evidence, there is crime of passion involved. Why is Florida not doing more to investigate it further? Because to me, there's enough evidence and a motive to investigate it further. To investigate him further. Me too. I would definitely love to speak with her. And get her opinion. I'm going to reach out to her. And, and see if I can get her on. I'd have to do it probably around September, if not October, because I have some medical things going on myself um, that I want to get taken care of first. And then after that, I'm going to see about getting her on. But I think that it would be an excellent option to be able to have her on so she can have her voice heard so she can tell the story and tell her side of it, what she feels may have happened. I can tell that his mom is very passionate and caring and she's really, you know, showing a lot of empathy to individuals and everyone in the community. Oh yes, I 100% agree. I I have been following this case. Gosh. For a very long time, I've been following this case.
It's sad. Oh, here's okay. So someone even posted on YouTube. Oh, yes, we can listen to it. it. Well, it's two hours and 10 minutes. The disappearance. I'll give you the link so that you can watch it. I was going to say if it was short, like 30 minutes, I would play it. But it's like. Eric Lee Franks was a 38 year old from Saginaw, Michigan. Yeah. He loved children and communicating with. Because I'm single or whatever, I probably did. If he can't drop by where I work, I probably did. But I didn't know that he's married and living in Mississippi. Oh. See if we can hear the mom talk. And did he did he go to college? Did he work? So I believe he, he had, had anything his to do mom on there. with her disappearance. And in that case, I'll also keep you informed as to what he said in that interview when I get to watch it. And one final note before I present to you my interview with Joanne Frank's mother of Eric Frank's. This is a long interview, the longest interview I believe that I have ever done for Unfound. That is not an accident. There is a lot of information, a lot of ins and outs about this case. And frankly, before the end of it, you're going to find out that this may be more about the disappearances of two people, not just one. I now present to you my interview with Joanne Franks, mother of Eric Franks. So what does she think that he, uh, the so husband, killed the wife? Killed Kendra? Unfound, Eric Franks's mother, Joanne Franks. Joanne, welcome to this episode of Unfound. Thank you, Ed. Thank you for having me on. You're welcome. Please tell the listeners a little bit about your son. If they were to have met Eric at some point. What would they have known about him? What would they have liked about him? What strikes you as him being your son? Well, Eric had a very good-looking young man, for one thing, and um, he um, had a very good sense of humor. Uh, he liked to read a lot and watch movies, so he would be right in there to discuss those things with you. And he was a really good friend to people. If he really liked you, uh, he'd give you the shirt off his back. He'd give you the last dollar you had if he really liked you. you know, he was a dedicated friend. He was a he, he was a, a nice guy, you know. I mean, we all have our faults, but he was a nice guy. And what's what's a memory maybe from a maybe a, a family vacation that? You, you, your family might have gone on one time. What do you think of first when you think of Erica, an image that comes to your mind? As far as vacation, we, we took the children on vacations every year. We went to Gatlinburg a lot, and uh, we took them to places like um, oh, Silver Dollar City and um, old places just where they could have fun. We took them to Disney World, and um, we usually did not live right by their grandparents. One grandparent set of grandparents lived in North Carolina and one in Mississippi. So we would make sure they got to visit their grandparents um, at least once or twice a year. And we always made sure they went on vacation just for fun every summer. So mm -hmm. um, Eric, no. we, we, tried, we tried out for King Kong movie one time and, and as a family. And some parts of our family was on Family Feud one time. We just 
we were enjoyed right? things like that. Yeah. Now, Eric was adopted. Uh, tell the listeners a little bit about that. I'm a uh, the listeners should know this topic has come up before in an episode. I'm adopted as well. So anytime I hear about somebody who's been adopted, I take a personal interest in it. This is what Joanne looks like. Eric's adoption. In a photo that she had with Eric. Well, my husband and I have been married about six years when we adopted Eric. And um, we it was a private adoption. Um, and, um, well, he was just an answer to prayers, as, as was our daughter that was born about four and a half years um, later. Um, he was just a precious little boy, you know, kind of bald-headed with a little bit of black hair right in the back of his head. And I remember um, the first time we, my husband and I saw him, um, my husband said, is there any doubt? He meant, we want that baby. And um, my, my, we found out about him actually through my parents because some friends of friends, it was like I said, it was a private adoption. And uh, my dad had even said, if y'all not taking this baby, I am. Because <laughs> he was he was just adorable, and we couldn't love him any more than if I'd have given birth to him. How old was he when you adopted him? Five weeks old. Five yeah, and weeks. He, was, he was tiny. He hadn't been out of the hospital all that long. He weighed um, eight three when we adopted him and this our daughter weighed eight fourteen when she was born. So he was he oh was kind of small but but he ended up being six foot one as a man. So Yeah, he, he definitely grew up. <laughs> what were some of his hobbies and, and interests? What do you like to do in his spare time? Um well when he was a a young boy he loved Star Wars. He loved to write and um he always enjoyed writing um, through his life and reading a lot and drawing. When he was little, he liked to draw. He didn't do so much of that when he got older. Um, when he was young, he liked skateboarding and um, he liked those throwing stars, people, you know, back when he was young. And um, just an average kid, but um, he kind of liked staying in his room sometimes when he was younger. If we went on trips, when we got back home, he usually wanted to go to his room and see his things, you know, and um, he was just um, just sort of average kid, I guess. Mm -hmm. And did he, did he go to college? Did he work after uh, getting out of high school, or what did he do, do with that with his life? No, he didn't go to college. He um, mm -hmm. talked about going to um, get his uh, license, you know, to drive a truck. Matter of fact, when he went up to um, Michigan, he, uh, where he disappeared from, he was at that time talking about enrolling in a school to, you know, to learn to be a truck driver, which would have been ideal for him because he liked to travel, and um, I think that would have been a perfect job for him. Now, he did want to be a movie director, and when he was growing up, he, um, he's been to California a few times and couldn't afford to live there, but he loved it there, and um, when he was young, we bought him a director's chair and had his name put on the back well we put elf studios his initials are elf and he started that he wrote, would write things and say elf studios you know and uh, we had a plaque put on his bedroom door that said elf studios and um but that's what he his dream was to be and he actually did work backstage on a movie one time when he was in california neat but neat. he couldn't i think it was clear and present danger 
but he he just couldn't um, couldn't afford to live there. It's expensive. Yeah, yeah that's it's what expensive. he said. Yeah. But he told me one time he said, "You'd love it out there, Mom." And I, he, I said, "Well, if you live there, I'll come visit you." But I don't want to live there. He said, "But it's ideal weather all the time." So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now he at some point he went in search of his adoptive family, didn't he? Yeah, when he was about nineteen, he um, he told me he said he didn't want to hurt us, and so we told him no. I mean, we knew where his biological family where they were. His biological mother had been killed in a car wreck. I'm pretty sure that he was, you know, and, jealous. Um, so. So he did go meet He considered them. Emily uh, as his daughter and, and Kendra was his wife. So obviously if Eric was going to move with Kendra, then that would interfere with his current family. For me to see. And Eric looked like her, so he probably looked like his biological mother. So that happened when he was 19. And how, how did it go for those those next almost 20 years? Did he keep in contact with them, or what kind of relationship did they have? No, he he um, he got a copy of his birth certificate. He um, had his mom's thumbprint and his baby footprint on it. He brought it and showed it to me. And um, he he his words were, they're smothering me. And I don't know how whether they were, you know, kept trying to get in touch with him. He just said he he broke it off. He didn't really want. He was just curious. Uh, he wanted to meet some of them, but he didn't want to have a relationship with them. Um, now he did talk to his biological father um, by phone. Um, he did not live there in in the same place where the rest of his biological family lived because they were not married. Um, biological mom and dad and he um his biological father he said told him if he called him anymore he'd kill him so he um that was disappointing you know and he just he just never tried to contact him again um i think he had married and had a child that they didn't know about eric so he didn't want them to know so Hmm. yeah just sad that that those things happen but they do right now, if we could get more, maybe a little bit closer to the time uh, that Eric disappeared, what was going on in his life maybe about six months before he ended up moving to Michigan? And we'll get into moving to Michigan and the reasons behind that. But was he, he was in a relationship, and he was living in, what was it, Mississippi? or? Well, he, he was married and living in Mississippi oh, okay. um, before he moved to Ohio. Uh, he moved here in 2008 and um they both he and his wife both had pretty good jobs um but they still weren't making you know they needed to make a little more money so at that time he thought maybe uh, he asked me reckon he could do better with jobs here and at the time i said yes but that's when you remember the stock market fell and and um things got kind of bad about two weeks after they moved here but um so they they moved here in 2008, but he had been living in Mississippi where his dad was from for, oh, I don't know, probably close to 15 years. Mm-hmm. And what happened with his marriage? Well, they were 
I think, very much in love, and they moved here, and they had um, dreams of, you know, things being better financially for them and everything, and then, like I said, the the economy just kind of collapsed, and um, so it wasn't easy to find jobs and everything, but they, um, they were here for about two years, and um, then he, during that time is when he learned about the daughter he had in Michigan, so... Mm-hmm. Um, his wife. This is so heartbreaking told him he ought to, to know that he lost his life up. over and wanting to meet his daughter. He did not want to do that. And I, that's not what broke up his marriage, but that contributed. I think that was the final straw um, is what went on that caused him to go to Michigan, that his wife left him. What uh, what work was he doing at the time that when he was married? What was he and his wife? What work were they involved in? Well, at the time he went to Michigan, she was working and he was keeping her little boy. Um, he she found a job here in town and uh, at a like a convenience store service station place. This is a really little place, but there's a big manufacturing business here too. This outer woodworking is here and employs lots of people from even out you know out of town but and he did um apply there and got a call back but at the time this podcast uh, was done about three years job, ago which did not pan out many actually it has I been three years that job then but um 23 now so he worked at a frozen pizza place here uh, where they manufacture frozen pizzas and freeze them yeah she does and, um, she's he had an, I can't remember, oh, he worked at a Seems like she's place. so nice. And um, for a while, neither one of them could find jobs. And then, like I said, they did off and on find some. Okay. And they were only here about two years before um, he contacted, his, uh, actually his old girlfriend got in touch with him. Right. Let's, let's, why don't we talk about her since she's going to be a, a major person in in the rest of this interview what can you tell what you know we don't want to get to know that your son's been missing for 12 years has had to take a large impact on her and well probably health-wise as well she she actually lived in Saginaw Michigan but when when my family and I lived in Nashville Tennessee she and her mom and her siblings um lived and came to Nashville and that's how Eric met her. Actually, I worked with her just a short time at a place in the mall where I was working for a friend at her business in the mall. And um, I don't honestly remember much about the girl except it seemed like she had long curly hair, dark curly hair. And uh, the first time I guess I met her, she was only 15. And I, re- I just remember asking my friend, how was she able to work there when she was that young? And she just explained that her mom agreed it was an after-school um, thing, you know, where she could work part-time. And um, honestly, I didn't even know she... Eric said I introduced them. and um, but You, I you don't know. remember that? I didn't, I didn't... Well, not really, but I don't doubt that at all, that I did. I mean, she was cute, he was cute, and... <laughs> you know, right. both of them single or whatever, I probably did. If he can't drop by where I work, I probably did. But I didn't know that she actually, she and her mom went back home to Michigan and then apparently came back again. I don't know that her mom came back with her. I think maybe she just came back. 
um, but she was about 17, I think, when when she and Eric were dating. And I didn't even know that they, you know, and it could have been that I introduced them closer, you know, whether it wasn't when she was 15. It could have been a little bit older because I think they dated when she was about 17. And uh, How old would have Eric been at this time then? Was he? Probably, um, well, I want to say he was about 19, but he must have been a little bit older than that because I think there's about four years difference in their ages. Okay. Uh, she she's a little bit um, um, I think that I think that's right. I think there's oh. about four years. Okay, and, so uh, this is well before he ever met his future wife. I mean, several several years before before that. That wife. He had been married before. At the time that he dated Kendra, he had never been married. Okay. Um, no, that but he was. Um, I know Kendra told me that she thought she met Eric's first wife because they got married in Nashville. And um, so it was all about the same time when he was, when he knew the girl that he married, the first, the first mm -hmm. wife. So Eric and Kendra were, had a relationship. And how long did they date? Uh, how long were they going together? And what eventually, you know, caused them to break up, to your knowledge? I can't really answer that because I didn't even know they until until he went to Michigan and told me he was going and talked about you know Kendra and everything. I didn't know um, they had had that kind of relationship. Now huh. he had he had expressed um, later to me before he ever went to Michigan that like he never got over her, but it wasn't like he talked about her a lot he, to me anyway. Now, I know one of his friends told me that he said she was the one that got away, so um, he may not have ever gotten over her, but it wasn't like he talked to me about her. So you never knew uh, that he was dating her or anything? He, sad. He may have gone out for a year, and you have no idea of that they were well, ever together. He didn't, he didn't live at home then. He lived mm -hmm. in the same town, but he had his own apartment, and, you know, he probably dated girls I didn't know anything about, and... Um, I don't, really don't know how long they were dating. Okay. Now, all these years later, uh, 2010, he gets back in touch with her, or she gets back in touch with him. After I, We're going to guess several years of them not communicating with each other at all. How did that happen? Yeah, I don't think they'd seen each other in close to 17 years, almost about that. Um, well, he... When he came to Ohio, he started a Facebook page. Now, I was not on Facebook at the time and didn't, you know. I actually got on Facebook after he disappeared to help try to find him. and uh, But he created a, a Facebook page. He, I think he had more than one, but he created one where he had, there were, I think, eight people on the page. Um, and... He just was trying to find her. I'm going to see if I can find his Facebook. You know, that she lived in Michigan, and he was pretty close now, living in Ohio, and he just wanted to friend her. But he couldn't find her on Facebook because, um, turns out, she went by fake names. She had a couple of fake names. Oh, and wow. use her own name. So he couldn't find her. But he remembered um, the man that came to Nashville and picked her up and brought her back to Saginaw when Eric and she and Eric broke up and he didn't know she was 
apparently two months expecting a baby. She was two months pregnant when they broke up. He didn't know all this at the time, but he got in touch with the man that came and got it her. It is devastating. And he goes by his actual name on Facebook. And, and that's John Carnes. Yes. Oh, I should see okay. if I can find his Facebook, John yes. Carnes. And he, um, he got in touch with him and told him that he was trying to find Kendra and I Obviously, that would make him jealous if he's contacting her husband. John had gotten married uh, when she was about eight months pregnant and um, with Eric's baby. But Eric and, didn't know uh, that at the time. This was totally no. unbeknownst to Eric, but he was getting in touch with a woman who all these years later had actually had his child, and he never knew about this daughter that he had at the whole right. time. Okay. Right. And okay. he... he uh, communicated with um, Kendra's husband, not knowing that was, I don't know at what point he realized or was told. That would they set were married, off a red flag to want him to do something to Eric. my understanding from what Eric told me and also what Kendra told me later and what John told one of my sisters later, this is after Eric disappeared and we were looking for him, uh, that John um, told Eric, I will give Kendra your information and leave it up to her if she wants to get in touch with you or something like that and um she did she Mm -hmm. got in touch with him do you think that john at that time knew that the daughter was eric's oh yes he admitted he did later okay at the time i don't know what he told eric at the time well of course they didn't discuss a child that wasn't even brought up Mm -hmm. um eric found that out later through kendra but um um, but John knew, yes, yes, he knew. He he told the police later, uh, told our family that he always knew that was Eric's baby. And matter of fact, um, in recent weeks, I have talked to Kendra's mother and sister who told me they always knew. Um, his sister told me we always knew that was Eric's baby. We were just told not to talk about it. So this all happened in 2010 at some point that eric tries to get back in this with this it is really sad i feel bad that this happened to him he remembers this john carnes guy you too i i do appreciate you stopping in and this and then he says yes i'll set you up if she wants to contact you she can and then sometime in 2010 eric and kendra start talking to each other again after a long time that they hadn't um I agree. I think there's more motive, and I think that if we can all work together, maybe we can figure out a way to get, you know, help try to get justice. Tell him, or she give him hints. How did she go about that? From what you remember? Well, I know what Eric told me and what she told me, and they were pretty much the same story. Okay. Um, She um, posted on after they became Facebook friends. She posted on there about when um, that she had two daughters. And she gave their birth dates, and and um, she what the, her words to me when I called her looking for Eric, find out what happened to him. Her words to me were, "I told John, Eric is smart. He's figured out that one of the daughters is his." And um, Eric told the same story that she posted their birth dates, and he knew, according to when the oldest oldest one when her birth date was, that it had to be his child. So he asked her, and she said yes, it was. 
Hmm. She was and, just she wanted him to know that it was. I mean, why would you why would you get in touch with an old boyfriend who she said they had a um, rocky relationships while they broke up? Um, why would you get in touch with somebody like that that you say, um, well, Eric did have a temper sometimes, and she said, um, you know, that that was part of why they broke up. He was jealous of her and things like that. That Why would you do that after almost 17 years, want him to come meet the daughter that he never knew existed? That didn't make a bit of sense unless you had a motive. Okay. So he goes to, he just up and decides, I have this daughter, I'm going to Michigan to see her. And this happened roughly of October of 2010. Um, what do you remember about that? Yeah, he had decided a little bit before October that he was, by the time, mm. when he knew that he had a daughter, he was going, he was going to go meet her. And that's what he should have done. And I told him, I mean, yeah, you, you should go meet your daughter. But I reminded him, you know, you're still married, Kendra's still married, because he was, ha he talked about how, you know, he, his wife had left him, and, and Kendra said her husband and she were separated, that they were estranged. And um, so he had to kind of hope things would work out between them, but he told me, if it doesn't work out between Kendra and I, I'm not going to leave up there, um, and, you know, as long as my daughter's there. And he was determined to go see her. He actually, now his wife left him, so he stayed in his their apartment for a while, and then he came over and stayed with me. So when he actually um, left for Michigan, he left from my house, and it was on October the 25th, 2010. So you're, do you, did you know that he was going to stay there? Did you anticipate that he was going to be there for a long time? I mean, did you anticipate that he'd be there the whole way till March until the time that he disappeared? Or, did you think this was just going to be a couple weeks? What, what, what did you think before he left? Uh, well, he didn't have a time limit, but he didn't take a lot with him. But he didn't know how long he'd be gone. But he left, uh, like, his bed, his TV, his microwave, uh, some clothes. He left things here with me. And he said that, you know, in case he needed to come back and get an apartment again, he'd have things already, you know, he'd have his things that were necessities. Mm. Um he he only he took some books and probably some movies. I don't know. He had a few things and some clothes. He just in his car. I mean, he didn't put things in his trunk and things in his back seat when he left. And he didn't take a lot with him. And um, no, he hates cold weather. And um, so I'll probably play a little bit more of this, and, and then the after that, in here. my stream. <laughs> So, I'll probably finish when it was the rest in Tennessee, of it on my um, like next stream. He's one of those people that wore long sleeves. a total of two hours. Even when it was warm. I'll probably play about an hour of it. He wore a hoodie. He just, he could kind of, when, Oops, you know, I'm, to me it was wasn't that cold. I was trying to mute cold, my mic and I muted that. His metabolism. So, okay. Um, I don't think he intended, and I know when he was there, he, he had posted, I knew this later, that he he said something like, I vow to get my girls out of here once he and Kendra and the, the daughters were, you know, I guess, staying in this, um, well, he did, I think at some point he was living on the property, not in the house with them, but on the property from everything I've known since. Okay. 
We're going to get to that. Um, would you, so he, you would say that he is, he was excited. I mean, he was of course surprised that he had a daughter. He was excited though to meet her. I think he was the happiest he'd ever been in his life to know that he had a child because being adopted to him, well, he said to me once he got up there to Michigan, he said, um, I told him he still he ought to get a paternity test done, and he said, and his wife wanted him to, and um, he said, "Mom, she's a female me," and um, he just he had no doubt, and he was so excited. Um, it was like he was in just infatuated and in love with this this idea of having a daughter. He never had any biological children. He had had two stepsons. So and I wonder if he up and left his wife to go be with his daughter. He should have wife, wife to go um, see his daughter. I think probably would have possibly had a different outcome. About two. I think he loved that child like he was his own. What went on eventually when he once he got to Michigan? What what happened when he got there in October? Well, I know that, and some some I found out since. Some mm-hmm. I knew then. Um, he talked to me on the phone about some of it. Yeah, what was he telling you while he was up there that was going on? Well, Kendra was just kind of playing him. Um, she would say, I don't know, you know, once, I mean, there he is. He went up there and, um, and she might, she's saying, I may not even let you meet your daughter. I may not even tell her that you're her dad. And he, I know he told me one time, he said, well, do they not know that I know where she goes to school and I could just go tell her, but he, he didn't. He waited till they, till they, her parents told her. And, um, so, I mean, he was only there five months, but they didn't tell her. Well, I think they told her in November, maybe the end of November about Eric. And, um, but, he and Kendra apparently had rekindled during that five months he was up there, rekindled their relationship. And um, where did What did he do for work, and where did he stay while he was there? Well, I think the first couple of nights he stayed in a kind of a nice motel, and then that's too expensive if you're just going to stay in a motel all the time. So he, um, I, it was my understanding, Kendra found um, this little motel called Miller's Motel, in the Bridgeport Township, and that's where he stayed. Mm-hmm. It's just a little, little place. Not a, you know, it's okay, but it's not. wasn't a real nice um, chain, you know. And eventually, though, Kendra did allow him to see her. And how did? Uh, I'm not sure we really want to use the, the the daughter's name, but how did she and Eric get along? I've used her name on Facebook because. Okay. Well, I mean. Okay. Her first name. Her first name's Emily, which right. I thought. Okay. To me, I figured she was sort of named after Eric because of, Eric called himself the E, <laughs> and her being named Emily, it just made me think that. I don't know if that was you know, but um, he met her. Yeah, he he said I think the first time he met her was in the mall. Uh, Fashion Squares Mall in Saginaw, and um, the I think the way he told it, and the, well, the way I think Kendra may have told me too, was that. Um, but Eric had posted stuff about it. I read that later that she um, leaned over to him, Kendra did, and said she knows. Mm. 
and that was the first time they were actually together when they both knew that's my daughter, that's my father. And they took pictures. I don't I never saw any pictures of them together that day, but there were pictures Eric told me that she um dared him to wear this wig that was dreadlocks and a patch like a pirate patch and he posted a picture of him with that on and then there's a picture of her in the mall with um oh a similar kind of you know kind of a puppy dog hat with pigtails on it or something and um, matter of fact my sisters and I went to that mall more than once but we went there and found the place where they sold those things and when Eric was talking to you about being up there uh, did, at any time did you ever feel that he was in danger or any threats against him anything that went on of course there's still John is in the picture Kendra is married to John did his name come up in those months that, that you were talking to Eric while he was up there yeah, he. Uh, as far as him feeling me being afraid for him, the only thing was that he told me one time he wasn't comfortable at that motel because it was not as nice a place. So there were guests living there that, uh, you know, were not the kind of people that you would want to be in a room next to or, or anywhere near you. And so sometimes, you know, he said that, he wasn't comfortable there, but he couldn't afford to go to a nicer place to stay on and on and on like that. Mm. Um, the only time I remember him really mentioning John to me was about a car that um, that Kendra and John had bought for uh, Emily uh, for her 16th birthday because she ju- just turned, um, actually just turned 16 not long after Eric went up there. Okay. And he just, but he, he talked a little bit about him, like he told me that John had moved out. Um, was trying to, that Kendra had got, Kendra got a place and John was, now, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm telling you that Eric probably did not get the truth from the people he was I understand. with, yeah. but this is, you know, so I don't know. Right. I, all we're working on right now is what he was telling you what was going on up there. Right. Yeah. So that uh, John tried to rent a house next to where Kendra had gotten a place, she and her girl. And I've been there, and from what the neighbors told me, that house was empty um, along about that time, and that they actually purchased it. So what he told me and what he, you know, that, that kind of was backed up by what the neighbors said without them actually telling it, you know, that John tried to get it. I don't know. I was told, Eric told me that um, that Kendra told, said that John tried to, um, couldn't get that place, so he moved in to one of his, he has four kids, two by previous marriage, and uh, he tried to move in or did move in with his daughter from a previous marriage. Like I said, I can't verify these stories. Okay. That's just what, what he was told and told me. Okay. So we get close or very close to the time that he disappeared. And this is for the listeners should know something. You're going to see a lot of different dates out there regarding the time that Eric disappears. What you're going to hear now is that those dates are a little bit in dispute. Uh, I can look at the Charlie Project 
org site and see that it says he's been missing since March 21st, 2011. But what you're going to hear now talking to Joanne is that date is not set in stone. It's, it's questionable. I just want to keep that in mind as we go forward. Joanne, what do you remember about those what days when you – some of the last times you had contact with Eric, whether it was through on the phone or, you know, of course, we haven't even talked about another fr – this friend that he has, Leah, who I've talked to, who had was having contact with him. What can you tell me about those days, those like end of February, beginning of March? What do you remember? Um, well, now later, later times, I know that he probably he posted mm -hmm. about fixing up a house and they mm -hmm. had water issues. Um, he just told me, well, last time I talked to him was March 10th by phone, and he told me, don't mail me anything else to the motel. I had mailed him Christmas gifts, and he said, don't mail anything else here. I'm going to be leaving, and I'm going to um, get a place um, that doesn't have good reception. He said, I'm going to get a job. I'm getting a post office box. So he said, uh, just don't mail anything else here, and we had a discussion this about... This is so sad. Um, this is Eric Lee Frank's that mom had, that was, was on a podcast that was about three years ago. Because he had a car that really needed to be replaced. Mm. And um, so I bought him a car and left it in my name. I had the title, even though it was his. And I was buying the... Paying, I've just hooked him onto my insurance and um, for that car and bought his tag. And so our last discussion... Um, I wanted. I told him I wanted to, you know, title it over to him, and let him go ahead and take up, you know, the insurance. And he said, "We'll give him a couple of months," because he was getting this this job. And there was um, something posted about him trying to get a job at a pepper plant, but I don't think he was able to get it. And uh, I don't know all the details. There was just something about that. So the last time I talked to him and any of his friends um, on Facebook. He had some really close friends, a couple of guys, some girls from high school. You talked to one of them, Leah. Mm -hmm. and um, But he also had a, another friend or two from high school and then a couple of guy friends from when he lived in Mississippi. One of those guy friends had come to visit us at our home in Nashville. And um, so um, as, as far as anybody, any of them, none of them have heard, heard from him after about March 10th. So you, as far as you know, you were the last person to anybody that you know within Eric's circle of friends and all those people, you were the last person to talk to him on the phone. You could hear his voice. He was responding to you in contrast to texting or a message through Facebook or something like that. The last person outside of Michigan who heard from him was you on March 10th. Yeah, I think he talked to Leah some on the phone too, but not after that. None of us okay. heard from him after the tent. He, um, I have his voice on my um, recorder on my phone. You know, messages that where he called me from Michigan. I kept it, and I'm glad I did. That's he's got his voice on there. But it was earlier. It was when he um, had gotten a new phone, and he called to give me the number and told me to call him. But the last time I actually talked to him was the tent. Uh, now, the, I'm not the last person to have actually talked to him in person because the motel owner 
said he talked to him on March 14th. So the last reliable, honest, telling the same story every time the police, the media, the family, anybody talked to this man, the motel owner, um, he's told the same story to all of us. He talked to Eric on March 14th because Eric came in and paid his rent on March 14th, paid a week, a week's rent. So and, um, so does that mean when he pays his, his rent, that means he planned on staying there for another week? Is that sure paying up like pay, paying up front, up front? So he would he, be covered through the 21st. Right, and he didn't have a lot of money, so he wasn't going to pay a week's rent if he didn't intend to stay there. And the motel owner said he stayed two nights that he saw um, – I don't know that he actually saw Eric, but his car was there, the lights were on, so he assumed, I think, that he was in his room on the 15th and 16th. Okay, so we're getting closer to that March 21st date that tends to be out there, I guess. Yeah, well, see, the reason the police are using the 21st as his disappearance date is because Kendra changed her story and from what she told our family and the Ohio police, she changed her story. She told us she had seen Eric, the last time she saw him was in April, in the Buena Vista township in front of her house. And she verified that story to the Ohio police after we reported him missing here. Um, They called her and she said, I told Eric's mom, you know. And so she was verifying what she said to me, but I kept calling the motel owner and asking different questions. And one of the questions I finally asked him was, now, what was the exact date that my son checked out of the motel? He said, oh, Miss Frank, your son did not ever check out. He said, he told me that Kendra came on the 20th and the 21st and got Eric's things out of his room, cleaned his room out. Came, She did it on the 20th, but she came back on the 21st and turned the key in, took, got some things. He said that on um, the, see, like Eric um, rented the room on the 14th. He was there on the 15th and 16th. Then like on the 17th, 18th, and 19th, he said the lights were on at night, but nobody was there. He said he went into Eric's room, and Eric's things were scattered all around in the room, and but Eric wasn't there. And then he said on the 20th, Kendra came, and so he stepped into the room. He knew who Kendra was. He said he knew that Eric and Kendra had a child together. Uh, He had actually friended Eric, and Eric worked for him some and for his brother. So he stepped in the room and and asked her, where is Eric? And he said that, and he's told the same story over and over and over. He said that she said, um, he won't be back to your motel. He got a job. He got an apartment. He won't be back to your motel. And uh, then, so... You know, people have said to me, why would the motel owner let her take his things? Why didn't he call the police? Or why did he let her turn in Eric's key? Eric, Because he said over and over, Eric was not with her, no doubt. He was mm-hmm. not with her. But I think it was because he knew they had a, had a relationship, and he had seen her at the motel, he said, almost every day that she'd come to visit Eric, and he had, he knew about their child, and so he trusted her. And, um, Didn't seem like any big but, deal to him. He, she, he had a relationship with her, some kind of relationship. Yeah, he told me, he said, they were either in love or mighty good friends because he had seen them hugging. 
and uh, that's what he told me. But um, she, but when I found out that he, that that Eric did not check himself out, I immediately, when I hung up with the motel owner, I called my son-in-law, and I told him what the motel owner, Mr. Patel, had told me, and he said, um, "You need, we need to call the police." And um, so we did, but the, the Ohio police got in touch with the Michigan police. And so, by, you know, the Michigan police are the ones that needed to take it over. But, um, the, but when the Michigan police at that time had it, they talked to Kendra, and she changed her story. I mean, every bit of it. She never told them one thing she told me. I talked to her two times. She never told them one thing she told my sister. She talked to her two times. Not one word. Her whole story changed. That's where they came up with the 21st. Okay. Because she, because she then said, oh, the motel owner is not right. He's not telling the truth. He said, she said, Eric was with me. She said, I was just helping him get his stuff out of his room. She even told details that she got a plastic bag and got things out from under his sink. And she put everything in his car and his trunk. And she watched him drive away. Well, she had just told me and my sister that she watched Eric drive away from her house in in April. So like two weeks in, later after after that at least. Oh well a whole different month, a whole yeah. different township, a whole different details. She told me that the last time she saw Eric, he was sitting in his car for two days in front of her house, that they had had an argument and she told me that he was trying to get her to make up and she said, I won't go I didn't make up with him and I watched him leave. Well, I've been to that house. It's a dead end in the country. No way did she watch him go anywhere from her house. Only thing she could have seen was him going down a dirt road, a road, uh, way, you know, mm-hmm. no way. She would have had to follow him to see what, where he was going. I mean, it's just not possible. And what she told the police then was um, that the motel owner wasn't telling the truth, that Eric was with her, and that she helped him, and then they drove away in different directions, and that both times she said he's going out west or going to see an old girlfriend in California, and, and that girlfriend actually was a girlfriend in Mississippi, the one she named. I don't know if she's ever been to California. So suffice, suffice to say, she was telling different stories to different people all over the place, and she told you more than one different story. Yeah, well, later, she told the police later, maybe Eric um, went over to the motel where he worked. He worked for that motel owner's brother at another motel. And he said, maybe, she said, maybe he went over there to tell them goodbye. She, she'd never said that before. And then in June, we found this out later, that she had told another story to um, Shane. He's a friend of Eric's from Mississippi, uh, but he now lives in Arizona. And, um, but they were all Facebook friends. So when he wasn't hearing from Eric after the 10th of March, he messaged Kendra and said, um, I'm not hearing anything from Eric. What's going on? Other people were on the page saying, where's Eric? Because Eric created the page. And then he wasn't on there all of a sudden. And he was a very social person on you know, media and um, posting more than once a day and everything. And then he just stopped. And so, um, so Shane got in touch with Kendra and said, "Well, where, where's Eric?" And she, and this is in June, 
like and four months said, later, four months later after yeah, March, mid-March. Right. And I didn't know about this until after he disappeared, of course. And I wasn't even on Facebook, but I didn't even know about it. And well, all these conversations till later. But um, Shane said that he, um, that Kendra said to him, oh, Eric's, Eric's with me. He's well. I'll tell him to get in touch with you. This is in June. And Shane never heard from me. And so later, after um, we reported him missing and it came out on the news and everything, Shane got back in touch with her and he said, did you kill Eric? He, and he, he said, just outright asked her. Yeah, this was after, you know, we had reported him missing and he just got in touch with her and said, did you kill him? And she said, no, you moron. I didn't kill him and I can prove it. And that was, look how long ago that was. My son's been missing six years next month, and the police never, ever ask her, what do you mean you can prove you didn't kill him? Because I kept telling the police, you know what? That has to mean either she didn't do it, but she knows who did. That's what it sounds like. Or, yeah. or he's alive and she can show us where he is. And yeah. they never, and, and the, what the police officer told me, he said, if we ever, if we find Eric's body, we might ask her. That's the word. That's what he told me. Let's, now, let's, he, uh, yeah, let's move back for a minute, though. Let's go back to March. You talked to him on March 10th. When did you know that something was wrong? Let's put you, because we're, we're kind of, some of this, we're kind of looking this back in retrospect. At the time you talked to him, how often did you usually talk to Eric on the phone? Once a week, twice a week? No, it wasn't any certain time, but he was only there, you're talking about while he was in Michigan. Yes. Sure. Um, no, we didn't talk real often because, I mean, he was only there five months, and he wasn't mm -hmm. one to call me every day or every week. It would, uh, no, so he, like, he might call me on Mother's Day and things like that, and then he'd call me when he wanted to tell me something. Or Now, when, you know, when he lived here in town, of course, we talked probably about every day, real often, but... Um, so, not every single day. So That's going fine. going 10 days without talking to him on the phone would not have been unusual? No, not really. I mean, not really. I mean, he didn't call him. Like, okay, like now that I'm a widow, my daughter checks on me pretty much every single day. We talk more than once a day. Well, one thing, she's a daughter. and and But Eric Eric looked, looked out for me, but he didn't call me as often. And back... Um, when, I mean, when he went up there, I knew what he was doing. I knew what he was there for. I knew where he was. Um, and we did talk to each other. And, um, you know, I, I really wasn't worried when I didn't hear from him. Okay, the, I would call him, and, and there was no answer. And, you know, I didn't think a lot about it. Some people have said to me, well, they didn't say it to me. I've seen where people would post on Facebook under his, you know, his flyers about his missing information. I only saw it a time or two where somebody said, wonder why they didn't report him missing sooner. You'd had to be in the situation to understand it. Um, he, he was, um, I knew what he was doing. I knew where he was. And then when he told me, well, I'm not, you know, I'm going to be in a rural area with a little reception. Then when I would call and he didn't answer, that's what I thought it was. There's, there's, he's so far out in the, as he would call it, the boonies. Um, that was another thing. That would have been a word he used in 
when it was posted something about rule, his own his wife said, "Oh, Eric didn't say that. Somebody's pretending to be him." But anyway, I didn't think that much about it at first because um, so I'd just leave a message, and then I'd get an email. Well, so I and when was this? And when was and when would this have been? Well. From the time that I didn't talk to him anymore after March the 10th, yes. up, through August, up through August, I was getting emails. I didn't get lots of them, but then, like I said, he wouldn't have, I didn't call him every day or every week. I called him when I wanted to ask him something or tell him something, and he didn't answer the phone, but I would get an email. And like one time I, I called him and I said, son, do you care if I give your TV you left here to, um, to one of your aunts? And um, he and I got an email back said that's fine give it to her and uh, but they were choppy and short and there was just something about them later looking back at them mm -hmm. that I don't think it was Eric at all but at the time I thought it was but when the email stopped then I got really worried and I know my daughter and I were talking about it and we said well we know what he's doing and he's in the country and he's been emailing but now he stopped. Let's give him a little bit more time. That's why we didn't report him missing until actually in November. So it was about right. three months period. Now look in hindsight, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yes, I wish that I had known what was going on, uh, obviously, and I would have done something sooner. But we, the crazy thing is, um, when so about three months went by there where I, my sisters reminded me that I was getting concerned when we went on a sister trip we do once a year that I was telling them I'm kind of worried about Eric because I'm not getting anything but emails back and then when the email stopped in August um, it was it was kind of strange because we reported him missing my daughter and I did here in Ohio and we I posted or I didn't post it, Leah did, his friend Leah, but we told Leah that we had reported him missing, and she posted something on the Facebook page she and those eight people were on together that his Eric's family was worried about him and had reported him missing. And um, that I think on the next, the day after she posted it, I got another email, and I had not had one since August. Hmm. And it, I don't have a doubt in my mind None of those were from Eric, and that last one, no way. So, so there was somebody, we don't know who that person, we have suspicion, but we don't know, but uh, somebody was posing as Eric. Somebody was getting, was able to get your messages that you were leaving for him, and then this person was responding, but in a typed form through email. Yeah, and the police told me that Kendra had Eric's phone. That's what they told me. Mm -hmm. Um that she had his phone and she was using it. And um, her husband told one of my sisters that she had a collection of phones, that he found them in an old purse of hers, that she had a collection because she had lots of boyfriends. <clears throat> and, that Did you, and, um, and so people should know, we've mentioned uh, a friend of Eric's, her name is Leah, who I also had a chance to talk to extensively uh, about Eric's disappearance. Uh, and she had some conversations that were very much the same, where she would leave a message 
And then he allegedly, Eric, would get back to her with very short responses. So he was not just doing it to you. He was doing it to other friends as well. This is sad. Right. And Leah said that in retrospect, it's, that wasn't Eric. But at the time, mm. we didn't have any. Why would we have ever suspicioned that the people he went up there to meet would mm. turn on him or any? And, you know, at the time that he um, went after I talked to Kendra, and ask her, you know, do you know what happened? What happened to Eric? You know, I knew he went up there to see her and, and their daughter. Um, I got worried then after she said, oh, he just left, you know. I, I didn't have, didn't know. I, I thought it was a little suspicious, but I didn't have any reason not to believe her. And so I was thinking, imagining all kinds of things. I thought, well, what if he went to sleep in his car and somebody knocked on his window and said, um, you know, Hey, you got a dollar or something? Well, he would have given them a dollar, and and so then they might. I thought, oh, then they might have killed him and took his car. But when I got those emails after that, my son-in-law said, like the one I got in November, he said, Joanne, you don't have to worry anymore about some stranger killing him because no stranger is going to kill somebody and then email their mother. Maybe, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's they true. They couldn't. They wouldn't. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Um, so they what did the, what did the police, what did, what did the police do then? Once it got to November, what did the police, I mean, that's a long way to backtrack now. We're talking about six months since you officially talked to him. What did the police do? Well, the, it first went to Bridgeport where the motel was when the police in Ohio got in touch with the Bridgeport police. So they had it um, just a very short time. I don't remember, very short time. And they didn't do any forensics in the motel room. I asked them to, and they said, oh, it's been too long. Well, that's not true. I was told not long ago they could still do it. There's, that it's not too late to see, you know, although I don't think that's where he was killed. I don't have any reason to believe that's where he was killed. But... Um, but so the Bridgeport police had it a very short time and turned it over to the Buena Vista police where John and Kendra lived, where, where um, she first told me the last time she saw him. And they had it for about a year, and they, um, it was Sergeant Waterman, uh, he did some investigating um, he said he interviewed um, John and Kendra a couple of times, once at their house. He said he just asked them, what's your name, that kind of thing. And then later called when they all went to Florida, and when we reported Eric missing, all of that family took off and went to Florida. So um, they, when they came, the police asked them to come back, and they said, well, we're coming back anyway. This is what the police told me. And so they interviewed them then for a while. And um, I remember asking them, did you talk to Emily, too? And they said no. And I said, well, I wish you would. So they said they would, and they told me later they did. Is this when you found out that her stories were changing? You told me that she told you one thing, she told the police another. It was then this time frame that she, her stories changed. Yeah, her, um, she told, okay, she, when she told me a story and she, my sister, my youngest sister, got in touch with her. This was after we were worried about Eric. 
before we actually reported him missing, I'm pretty sure it was before that, she called um, Kendra and told her we were worried about Eric. And so she gave her a story, which was the same one she gave me later, about he was in front of her house, they had an argument, he um, left after a couple days, she saw him go toward out west or California. And um, so she she said, well, I wish you would call my sister, Joanne, she's worried about Eric. So um, she did call me after my sister asked her to. She called me, Kendra did, and gave me the same story. And we talked about things about how she let Eric know that Emily was his child and different things. And then, um, and she was fairly friendly, but she said, I'll get back with you. She said, I'll see if I can see if Eric is around here, still around here somewhere. She said, one of my neighbors thinks he, she saw his car. We went and talked to the neighbor and the neighbor said, I would never have known. I didn't, I didn't know his car, you know, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It just went right. And so as that was in that time between August and November of 2011 when you got started to get worried? Really worried, yes, after the email stopped. Okay. Um, now, um, Kendra, I called her back. That's the way I talked to her two times. And she was kind of irritated at me that I called back. She said, I told you I'll call you if I hear anything. So I never talked to her again until, which you may want to talk about later, but until we went to Florida and my sister, two of my sisters and I went to Florida and talked to her. Yeah, we're going to get to that in a moment. But what have you learned about John and Kendra since Eric disappeared that you didn't know at the time when Eric was there? Well, I was told by the police and family members and friends of that family that they had an open marriage. Um, so... Mm-hmm. You know the and and I know. Did Kendra uh, not have uh, some sort of? We won't say his name, but didn't she have some sort of sugar daddy that was? Well, now I can't prove that. Don't mm-hmm. know that for sure, but that's what some of her family thinks. See, that's you know, interesting. You know, that's why I was talking. wondering. Usually, too. family members can be trusted sometimes. But is that is that possible? Do you believe it? Well, I know a lot of information that friends on Facebook and our family, um, there's a Facebook page that is a discussion about Eric that's a private page, and they've been a big help. Um, ladies on there have been, oh, such a big help in doing, um, investigating through Facebook, and my sisters and I have done it our own legwork as well as other kinds uh, on Facebook, and um you know, I, I found out a lot of things that makes me believe, yeah, that may be right. Okay. But uh, just to suffice to say that John and Kendra were a little bit shady. Uh, and they had been involved in a, in, a, in a business in which they got sued. And this happened shortly before Eric got up there. And we haven't even talked about this. That um, there, there was this, we talked about it, that there was a suspicion that John and Kendra might have been trying to pump Eric for money, thinking that he had money or was going to get money. Well, yes, because Kendra told me that. She told my sister that. John, I never talked to John, but John talked to my younger sister twice, and they, John and Kendra, both told my sister, and then Kendra told me that um, they thought Eric 
had inherited lots of money when his dad died. And uh, I'm talking big money because she named a number. And um, I don't know if she, if Eric and Kendra played each other, you know, built each other up. I would have no way of knowing what either one of them said to each other. But I do know that my younger sister, when she talked to Kendra, said that Kendra acted like she still, this is after Eric disappeared, that we'd reported him, well, about the time we reported him missing, that she still was surprised to find out, acted surprised anyway, that he didn't have lots of money and was going to leave it to their daughter. And that's what um, mm. John told my sister that, that Eric mm. said, he said Eric t- said he had lots of money and they, he was going to leave it to their daughter. So what you're saying is in one way Eric was trying to impress Kendra by making himself out to be maybe some had some possessions and some money that he didn't I and, have, and you have no I idea have no idea, no, no idea. Any of that because we're talking about people that don't tell the truth right um, Kendra's told all these different stories I don't know whether he ever right. told her anything like that if he did I don't know I have no idea okay. I just know that she and John both were were of the mindset that Eric had money. And I know I was told by someone very reliable they were in desperate need of money at the time that he was lured up there. Yeah, because they were getting sued for some business uh, that they were involved in. Well, they were getting sued because a man was found dead on their property. Um, They had an adult care facility. I guess they still do an adult care facility place, and a man was found deceased on the property. Now, it's my understanding, and that's public knowledge, um, it, um, it was my understanding, you know, they weren't found guilty of any of, of doing anything to the man, but it was my understanding there was a civil lawsuit by the family. Okay. Now, and some of this I got from media, some I go, you can find things on Facebook, and, and some of it, you know, here and there, I've talked to an awful lot of people that know the family. And Okay. Let's go back, and, and uh, before we get to what happened in Florida, because if li- listeners, uh, there's another, there's going to be another side to this that we haven't even got into that makes this case e- even, uh, you know, a little stranger than it already is. But let's talk about the maid, and I know we don't want to go into this too much, but w- from what I learned in talking to Leah about this, is that it seems that this maid that you had mentioned before might have had the hots for Eric. Uh, and that he had, no you have no idea about that. It must well, have been. I mean, I've talked to the maid more than once. So okay. Do you, do, you, do you believe that? Do you think so? She told me she's married. Mm-hmm. Um, she told me her husband knew that she and Eric were friends. Um, that she took him one time somewhere he needed to go, and I guess his car wasn't working or something at the time. And um, I, I know the motel owner and the, the housekeeper both told me that Kendra was jealous of her and told her to stay away from Eric. They both told me that. Um, but she said that they were just friends. Uh, so whether she, you know... I think Eric indicated on Facebook that she kind of flirted with him, uh, but, you know, I don't know. Um, 
her husband, she told me that her husband was um, a double amputee, and um, because Kendra indicated to the police that Ann's husband probably killed Eric, and um, so the police went and talked to to, to her and to her husband, and um, they never suspicioned either one of them of anything, and they never were, you know, they never were suspects. Okay. Fair enough. Let's move on to Kendra. Now, whether she had a crush on Eric or not, mm -hmm. she may have had. I don't. She didn't. She didn't indicate that to me, but that doesn't mean she didn't. I don't know. Okay, because uh, Lee and I, Lee and I had conversations that were along the lines that was a little more than that. Not that they had a relationship, but right. But we're just going to leave. We're just going to. They did not have a relationship that we know of. But there was some now, more Kendra things. Tried to indicate. Kendra tried to indicate to the police that they did, yeah. but there was never any, as far as I, I've met the woman, she seemed nice, but she wasn't Eric's type, and um, and she's married, and um, I think she took him some cookies one time, and he took a picture and put it on Facebook, I saw that later, and um, he had a, he, he had a good sense of humor, and he had posted, I think, something about she was a psycho, I think he called Kendra a psycho too, that's just mm. something he Dead, so. Okay. All right. I, I, I have to ask these questions. I have to right, because, right. Well, you know, when you hear about a married woman being nice to a guy that is staying in a motel and he, she went into his room one time and we didn't even talk about that, that he went in, she went into his room one time and he was hiding behind the bed. You know, she, she went in there to clean the room. Yeah. Though. That was her job. Yeah. That's what she told me. She knocked on the door and like maids do. And there was no answer. She went in to clean the room, and he was hiding behind the bed. And I think he was hiding because he was afraid of the man that threatened to kill him. Okay. Um, let's move on to Florida. So when did John and Kendra move to Florida? I don't remember the exact month, but somewhere, somewhere around the time... Um, it wasn't the exact time we reported him missing, but it was a little while after that. I couldn't tell you the exact date. I probably have it somewhere. I'm sorry. Late 2011, was, early 2012, let's say. I think it might have been 2012, but I'm not going to say for sure. But it was after – it was – to me, it wasn't long after we reported him missing. That, that, and I've talked to family about their family about that, and it was a sudden thing, according to some of them, that – they just, you know, they up and left because it wasn't just the two of them and their kids. It was extended family and everybody moved. There was a, several people went. And what happened to Kendra and Emily when they got there? Um, they were both diagnosed with cancer, weren't they? That's yeah. Apparently, um, there was a, a Facebook page for Emily called Team Emily Battle It. Um, where they were raising funds and um, for her cancer treatment, and then um, Kendra Kendra's adopted also, and um, she said she never knew. This is this is from an interview she did an interview with Emily, and I saw it um, about their cancer that she didn't um, didn't know about her family background, and that it was some sort of cancer that runs in families, a certain thing, because it was unusual for 
uh, Emily was only 18. That's unusual for stage four breast cancer in a woman that young. And then her mom having it at the same time, stage four, um, would be extremely unusual. But, um, I mean, I, I know there are people that questioned the cancer uh, with Kendra. Even her own family has told me that. Uh, some members, very close members of her family, questioned if if she's uh, if she had it. That's but I, I mean, I guess I believe she did. And you, and you and your sister, you said went to Florida, did you not? Yes. And two of my sisters. Was this before or after the the two of them were diagnosed with cancer? After. After. Okay. And what what did you do while you were down there? Well. We went, well, actually, we went to Jacksonville, Florida, and helped hunt for a, a missing, another missing man, uh, Joshua Davis. We went there with the Q Center in North Carolina, met them there. We, hunt, we went on a, I never had done that before, go on a search for a missing person. And uh, we did that, and then we went on to um, the Daytona Beach area um, to, I wanted to give some money to Eric's child, um, for her cancer and give it to her in her biological father's name. And um, so I got a money order and um, I got her, I called her. Someone gave me her phone number. I called her and told her that I would like to meet her and that if Eric, I, I said, do you know, you know Eric's missing? And she said, yes, I, I know and I'm sorry. That's what she said, and the very she was very kind and and sweet and and I said, um, well, you know, if if he could, he would be there for you, and I would like to give you a little bit of money for your cancer treatment, and I would like to meet you. And she indicated to me that she would would do that. She said she was with her boyfriend eating, and um, she would call me back, and and. Um, so my sisters and I walked down to the beach, and um, I, I told them, I said, oh, I left my phone in the car. I need to go get my phone. So I went up there and got my phone, and I had a text that I, I honestly, I don't know, but I don't think it was from Emily. It's because she had been so nice and talked so kindly, and, and, um, and the text said, it would be most appreciated. It said, this is Emily. It would be most appreciated if you would not try to contact me again. And so I didn't. And my sisters and I left, just went, started back home. Wow. But I did run it, but we did run into Kendra. Uh, how, right, how did you end up running into Kendra after all that? Actually, we ran into Kendra right before I called Emily. Um, well, we didn't intend, we didn't know we'd see any of them. We just hoped we'd get to meet Emily, but we knew where they lived, and we just drove by there. And honestly, at first, we thought it was Emily. They looked so much alike, and they were both bald um, at the time. From we knew that from Facebook, and um, so we thought it was Emily. And we went down there to speak to her, and it was Kendra. And she was very rude. Uh, she was shaking like a leaf, and um, which the police said she did when they talked to her. And um, did you just, did you ask her what she did to Eric? 
Well, it was a very short conversation. She was actually in the laundry room. We just, she walked into the laundry room, and so we just drove by, and, and two of my sisters got out, or one of my sisters and myself, we got out and just went up to the door and just, I, I said, um, I'm Eric's mom, because I hadn't seen that woman. I wouldn't have even remembered her at all, but I, I hadn't seen her since she was a teenager, and I said, I'm, hi, I'm Eric's mom, and she said, yeah, I know who you are. And uh, like that, and um, I said, well, I heard that you and Emily both have cancer, and I'm sorry, and um, I would like to to meet Emily and uh, give her a little bit of money in Eric's name. And she said, uh, I think the way I worded it was, I'd like to meet my granddaughter, I think is what I said, because she said, you're not her grandmother, because Eric is adopted. And... That was like hitting below the belt. And I thought later, that's a strange thing to say because she's adopted. That must mean she doesn't. And I found out later, yeah, she didn't have a lot to do with her family. I've talked to her family. So um, so that mm-hmm. explained that, I guess. That's just the way she felt about it. But you never asked, and, him, asked her about Eric, just point blank, what happened to Eric? I did. Well, what I, it was, you know, we didn't plan to see her, mm-hmm. so it wasn't like I had something planned to say. It was all a chance meeting, and I remember um, my one of my the sister that got out with me said, Deborah, she said, um, we just want one story from you, and I said, yeah, you told so many different stories, and she said, um, I tried to help y'all, but you turned on me. And I have no idea to this day what in the world, however, she ever tried to help us. And I said, um, no, I said, uh, she's, I said, no, your husband threw you under the bus because he had indicated to my sister and that, well, what he said to my sister was, Kendra may have killed Eric or got one of her many boyfriends to hurt him. I think I'm That's what John... Quoting. John said to, to my sister Deborah because okay. she talked to him two times I never talked to him and um, so that that's pretty much all she just said um, get out of my way because we were standing by the door and the door was open we were not inside the room we were out on you know their sidewalk and so we just stepped back and let her come on out and she took off in a huff and um, and she said, I'll call, I'm going to call the police. And my sister just said, well, go ahead. We've already talked to them. And we had. I'd stopped and talked to the, the Florida police and told them, you know, what we were there for and tried to give them one of Eric's missing flyers. They didn't want to take it. They said, you need to get the Michigan State Police to contact us about your son. Now, the listeners should know something. And this is, uh, I don't know how else to put this, Joanne, but this next part is a little strange to me. Haven't run into this before. But the listeners should know that Kendra Firmingham died in August of 2000. This is sad, so this part here. Like six months ago. From I mean, it's, it's sad because of the fact that, that nobody can so question her now that she's dead. But what is... Allegedly from her cancer, but what has her family said about her death? Well, um, I, I've talked to her mother several times. I've talked a few times. I've talked to her sister several times. They don't, 
I don't believe she's dead, but no, all right. I want to. I'm sorry to interrupt you for a second, just so the listeners heard that. Kendra Firmingham allegedly died here in Florida last August, but her family does not believe that she's dead. Now, I personally looked up and found the funeral home allegedly that took care of her remains, but there was no right. viewing. There was nothing like that. Little short on paperwork, but once again. The family doesn't believe possibly that Kendra is dead. Okay. Please continue uh, with that. Well, her, um, I was contacted by. This is insane that they who, don't think she's dead. She you don't have to. For, you don't have to. Yeah. She's kind of afraid of no, something. No need. But she contacted, this woman contacted me uh, that Kendra had died. And I asked her was she sure? And she said, well, that's what somebody had told her, but she wasn't really sure. She said, it's kind of weird because she too, along with my, one of my sisters, along with the media, along with the police, along with me, myself, have looked up that same funeral home page that you did. And it's really, really strange. So this person told me, well, I don't know. There's no condolences. There's no, no there was no funeral there. Um, and so one of my, someone that called the funeral home told me that what they were told by the funeral home was that, the, I don't know how to word this exactly, without, but and this is what I'm saying. Somebody told me that uh, this uh, what the funeral the home listeners understand. Told them. The listeners understand, yeah. yes. Right, that, um, that John had said he didn't have the money for for a burial, so the director sympathized with him. Um, he said that he said he had four kids to take care of, and actually all of the kids except the youngest one are take care of themselves. One of them's married and doesn't even live around there and has a child. So I, anyway, that's what he said. The funeral director said that. Um, so he just arranged for one of those. Um, embalm burial uh, situations, but that he allowed some the kids to view their mother. And, um, and you know, if she had just turned 40, and it was August 30th when she allegedly passed away. I mean, I guess I believe she did, but her, but I'm, I don't know the woman that well at all. I don't know the woman at all. The woman, and, the woman meaning... Kendra, I don't Kendra, really okay, know her, okay. All right. but her mom, her mom and her sister do not believe she's dead, and um, they've told me that more than once. And um, they were not invited to go down there. They didn't get a card in the mail. How did they find out that she was dead? Do you remember that they, uh, they told you? Yeah, one of Kendra's brothers went to Florida with them. He's in business with them, and. Um, it's my understanding that he let them know, but he was supposed to take pictures. Now, this is what I'm told by her mom and sister, supposed to take pictures and send to them, but they never got them, and that um, they didn't go to Florida, but there are some other relatives there that believe she was dead, so I don't know. I mean... It, the whole thing is a little bit strange. Uh, even one of their business partners was asked by a very reliable source that I would trust with my life 
um, was um, at, was asked about Kendra's death, and they said they didn't know she died, that they had just seen her shortly before that. So, and there's no record of a nine one one call. If anybody, we don't know at this point. If somebody, anybody's looked into a nine one one call or a hospital visit or an EMT response to somewhere, there's. We don't know about anything at that at this time. Has anybody looked into that? There has to be a record somewhere. Well, I don't know about all that. I do mm. know, uh, hopefully the police did, but mm -hmm. I do know that um, John said that um, he took her that he took her to the hospital or somewhere, hospital, I guess, and um, that she and a friend, a very close, I guess the best John's best friend actually talked to me not long ago and said that um, I think she died in his arms, um, in the John's arms. Now, you know, I feel funny saying these things when I didn't see it. Mm -hmm. And I'm being, obviously, I mean, I'm going by what I was told and um, by people that should know what they're talking about. But... But, well, know. I don't want. To, I don't think we're dealing in hearsay here. When the when the parent, when the, a family member, a mother of a woman, says that she doesn't believe that her daughter is dead, I mean that's not like through the grapevine type of thing. I know. You know, that's usually a pretty reliable source. But let's move on to this. Well, what have you? What did you tell me about Kendra possibly having a twin? Yeah, that's what her mom and her sister told me. Um, that. They believe she had um, an identical twin. Um, her sister told me she thought she saw Kendra just a few weeks ago uh, in Saginaw. And I know she was there um, from somebody that should know what they're talking about, that they said they actually talked to her. This would be um, insane if she did have a twin sister. sister. About a month, well, but about a month before she supposedly died, someone there did mm. talk to her. Um, okay that she came to Saginaw. Um, but, yeah, her sister thinks she saw her, but she wasn't positive, but she thought she saw her at the, around the mall. Wow. Which they have a business there, so it was. she said she thought she saw her coming out of there. But uh, And I know her mom and her sister do not mind at all. They know that, matter of fact, they know that I'm doing an interview with you. Mm -hmm. I talk to them pretty mm -hmm. frequently. And they don't. They would do. They will do anything necessary to um, to find some resolution for not only for Eric, but um, to get to the bottom of whether the daughter well, Kendra is actually dead or not. Well, there's some other things that they told me that you know they they don't think Eric is the first person to be involved in a situation like this, but I don't know that, you know, I'm not accusing anybody of anything okay. along those lines because that's pretty That'd serious. That'd be horrible if know. this wasn't the first okay, time well, that they did something like that. Then let's just, of course, stick to Eric's disappearance. What do you believe happened to your son? I think he was murdered. I think, um, the man that an eyewitness saw and heard 
I'm just hesitant to say, but I think anybody can know what I'm talking about. I threatened to put a bullet in Eric's head, and this eyewitness um, went to the police and ID'd the man, and with their they showed him pictures. He ID'd him. This is what the police told me, and the man told me. Um, and he was interviewed on uh, Channel 12 in Saginaw. He wanted his face blurred and his voice muffled. I mean, if somebody kills somebody, you don't want your face and name out there. And um, so he said that it wasn't that Eric told him. It was not the first time this same man had threatened to kill him. And uh, Eric had posted something. I found this out later, of course, uh, something about this time I'll be the man with the gun. So somebody had threatened him with a gun before. I figured that's why he was hiding behind the bed. And... Um, but this man saw it. He saw it, and um, oh. matter of fact, there were two witnesses to, while I'm thinking of this, there were two witnesses that saw Kendra clean Eric's room out. It wasn't just one. There were two. Okay. I didn't know that till not long ago. Okay. And if, can I, I'm going to, I, I need to ask these questions because the listeners expect this. Mm -hmm. Are you talking about John Carnes? That's who he ID'd. Okay. He um, gave detail um, uh, to the police. Now, the police told me this. It was um, Scott Woodard was the detective at the time. Um, this man, uh, we had put up missing flyers. My, uh, we had friends that did, uh, people we didn't really know, but Facebook people did. And then my sisters and I put up flyers. So all around the motel where Eric had stayed was one of the places we put them. So um, Leah, Eric's friend Leah gave me a lot of information and to my one of my sisters, two of my sisters, I guess, but one of them went through all of the information. It was Facebook stuff. And my sister found the name of a man that we'd never heard of in there. And so she asked me, do you know who that man, I didn't want to go through all the stuff at the time. It was very stressful. And my sister did it for me, thankfully. And she said, who, do you know who this man is? I said, no. So we asked Leah. She said, I don't know who that is. So we asked Eric's wife. She said, I've never heard of him. So we found him on Facebook. And I contacted him. And he didn't get back with me. So I contacted him a second time. And he got back with me. And he said, yes, I, I was in the motel where Eric was and we became fast friends. He said we both liked to read. We were both separated from our wives. He said, matter of fact, Eric convinced me to go back to my wife. He said, um, we made really close friends and he said, um, I knew all about Kendra and, and Emily and uh, the whole thing and he said um, he knew who they were. He'd seen them there more than once at the seen her there a lot, but saw um, John there too, he said, and had seen Emily there. Um, but, um, he said that he left the motel and went somewhere off working. And, uh, when he came back, he saw those flyers we'd put up there at a party store across the street from the motel. And he thought, he said, I remember thinking, I don't know, have any re there would be no reason for Eric to be missing. And so he just, maybe he figured we'd found him by then and he didn't, you know, just didn't do anything about it or anything. And um, so when, when we contacted him, he said, um, he said, oh, well, he knew, he knew a lot because he and Eric talked a lot. And he said, um, he said, I was there when, um, 
Eric was, this man threatened to kill Eric. And he said, he told me about, I said, well, you need to go to the police because we, Eric is still missing. So he waited two weeks. So we told the police about him and uh, he wasn't contacted by the police for two weeks. Two weeks went by and I got kind of agitated about that because I thought they need to talk to that man right now. You know, he, he knows things, he saw things. So I just called the media and I had uh, been interviewed by Terry Camp in Saginaw before on Channel 12. And so I called him and I said, I want you to interview me. I want, I, we, I want something done about this. And he said, well, let me interview the man. And I said, well, if he's in agreement, that's fine with me. And so he was. He was in agreement. And he, was, he interviewed him. And um, he told how he, what he saw, what he heard. And he... Um, walked him through everything. Now, by this time, by the time I was trying to remember, the uh, Scott Woodard took over the case for a very short time. Uh, Gary Thomas had the case. He's the one that had it when we told him about this man, and they had not contacted him, and two weeks went by. But Scott, that, that detective, Thomas, had to have some heart surgery. So during that time, Detective Woodard, came on the case and he said that Eric's case had been closed and that he got it, he found it in a file and he, file cabinet and he he re- had it reopened he said and he went to see the man took him, uh, walked him through, took him to ID the man that he threatened to kill Eric, he said he threatened, he said the man said if you don't leave my wife alone I'm going to put a bullet in your head and he took him to the motel, walked him through where the Cars were parked, well, you know, where he was, where Eric was, where everything happened. And, um, mm-hmm. I was trying to remember, they never contacted that man again. I, I don't think he's ever been contacted again. No, he, they never contacted this witness again. Do you think that, do you, do you, th- why do you think that Eric never told you about him? Him being threatened like that. Well, Any insight into that? Do what? Any insight into that? I'm sorry. Um, well, I don't know exactly when that happened, the exact date or anything. So, you know, it could have been so close to the time that Eric disappeared that, you know, when mm-hmm. I talked to him on the 10th, he didn't mention it. Okay. But, you know, why? in some ways, some guys would be like, um, oh, he didn't mean it. He ain't going to do anything, you know. Um, I can see that happening where he'd just think he's spouting off, even if he had threatened him more than once, that he's not going to do it. I mean, when you've never been beat up or you've never been um, shot or anything and you're not a person to carry a gun and things like that, I don't, you, you know, I, I mean, if somebody did that to me, sure, I'd be afraid. I'd probably go... I would, I would. I'd go to the police and report them. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. He never mentioned it to me. Okay. And I don't think. I don't think he ever. Well, he never mentioned it to his best friend Leah either. Yes, my, I know that. Yes, that's what she said. That's what she said. Mm-hmm. As is this true that I, I believe we talked about? Has John expressed an interest? John Carnes has, has he expressed an interest in actually meeting with you? Well, that's what I've been told by, um, actually, um, the police told me.
told them that he tried to contact me on Facebook, and um, I've looked and looked and looked, and I've never seen where he tried to contact me in any shape, form, or fashion on Eric's. Eric has a page, Find Eric Lee Franks, and I keep that updated and make posts and post pictures. I've never seen a message from him on there. Um, he never messaged me on my private page, um, but that's what he said. And um, I told the police that um, I was I didn't want to meet with a man that might have done something to my child and um, without them. <laughs> and... Uh, then he sent word through his best friend in Saginaw told me that John said he would like to meet me and um, and my sister, because we were together, and he said, meet both of you, I think, like meet you, like both of us, and would like for me to, um, for, to meet Emily, that it was, he said, his best friend said, John said it was Kendra that um, wouldn't let you meet Emily, and now that she's gone, you know, it's fine with John for you to meet her. Well, my thought was, Emily's 23 years old now. That's not some little kid that he can tell what to do. Right. If she want, and, 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 and I understand he did say it's up to her, though. And, uh, but I thought, well, she's a young woman she can contact me if she wants to. Now, when I heard that her mom had died, I felt really bad. I really did. I mean, I'm I'm a good person, and I don't care who did what. I, I That touched me to think that um, the two youngest, Emily and her sister, who's younger, would have lost their mom um, that young and everything, and um, she just turned 40, and even if she so, might have had something to do with Eric's death. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, that didn't take away me wanting justice and truth and everything for my child, mm -hmm. but I felt bad for them. So I private messaged Emily on her Facebook page and told her, I'm sorry that I heard your mom passed away. And I said, um, I know what that, how that feels to lose somebody you love so much. I said, my son uh, has not been found, and we believe he was murdered. And and then and my husband had died, and I've lost dear ones to me, and um, but she never did respond never or anything. Responded. Okay, what what else would you like to tell the listeners before we wrap this interview up, Joanne? Well, if anybody's listening that has any information, um, I've I've appreciated so much people that have shared. Um, Eric's flyers and have done things to help us. Um, but if anybody has any information, um, Trooper Hillary House with the Michigan State Police is in charge of Eric's case now. And, um, you know, I wish they would get in touch with her. Um, people say to me sometimes, how can people live with themselves if they know something and they don't contact you? Well, I've had several people in that family that have I, to me, it's several, have contacted me. And when I posted on um, Eric's community page that I post on that Kendra apparently had died and then I thought it was very sad, um, that's when her sister contacted me on Eric's page for everybody to read. It wasn't personal to me. She posted it to me, but it was where everybody could read it. 
And she said, I don't believe she's dead. My mom and I don't believe she's dead. And that's when that all started. Mm -hmm. And um, so there are people that will talk, but I've always said that if you kill somebody, you're not going to talk, not likely. And if you're covering for somebody that you love dearly, you're probably not going to talk. And if you're afraid of somebody or intimidated by somebody, because I've been told that there are a couple of people involved with this that um, they're like told what to do. And so, you know, but there's bound to be some more people out there other than the ones that have contacted me. And, and there's more than one or two in that group that have contacted me. And I appreciate it so much. And I hope, you know, if anybody else knows anything because hopefully one day it's going to go to trial and it would be better to talk about it now than to be found out later they know something and they wouldn't talk to me. That means you're just about as guilty. You have a Facebook page for Eric, don't you? Where, where can yes, listeners where can, where, where can listeners find you on Facebook? Um, it's Find Eric Lee Franks. Um, that's his Facebook page. And um, mm. I post, I don't, I used to post more often than I do now, but I try to keep it updated. There's just when there's something going on more, I will post more, but I post uh, his pictures, and um, there is a um, a website too that was I didn't set it up, but someone else uh, set that up. Uh, I think it's I don't I haven't looked at it in a while, but I think it's mm -hmm. www. Dot where is Eric Franks? But okay. but the, but his Facebook page that I take care of is just a Facebook page; it's not a website. But um, and they could go there and. Um, get his flyers. And, and what's it called again? What's the name of it again, please? It's just Find Eric Lee Franks. Find Eric Lee Franks. Okay. Yeah, and it has his, it has um, the cover photo is his picture and his car because they've never found his car. Yeah, his car's missing found, too. But Kendra had his phone. The That's what the police told me. She was using it to call. His phone was not used for um the, the, on the 21st, the day she says she last talked to him, there were two calls on his phone, three minutes each, the police told me. And it was between Kendra's phone and Eric's phone. And I, and they said, so he was alive that day. And I said, that doesn't mean that. That could have been she had one phone, John had the other. How do you don't? And they said, well, that's absolutely right. So then it went dead for, his phone went dead for about two weeks. And then... All of a sudden, it's used again to call Kendra's dentist, salvage yard, pest control places, a druggie. Um, a, a, there was a call on there to a surgeon. Hmm. Hmm. And that's the police told me that Kendra had his phone. She called her own dentist. And now they asked her about that, and they said she said, Oh, maybe Eric remembered or heard that my, about my dentist, which is silly for a lot of reasons, but because Eric had full dentures, he had just gotten them not long before he went up there, really close to the time he went up there to Michigan, and they were fully paid for. Um, in a year, he was up in July after he, when the July after he disappeared, he was supposed to go get his um, permanent ones. That was all paid for, all it was all visits to between that year were already prepaid. So he hmm. didn't need to go see her dentist. Right. And I don't know, I don't know if 
you and I covered this, but we, uh, my sisters and I, um, found suspicious things on the property where I believe Eric was killed. There are things, and we told the police, but they never went and got them. Um, the owner of that land had an item that she was suspicious about. They did finally get that from her. It took a while. She said a couple of weeks, I think. And, um, you know, we've talked to the neighbors. We've, um, there were suspicious things that uh, the person that moved into that house later was suspicious. They were, there. It's, it's a very detailed, a lot mm-hmm. of things that, you know, indicate that he was probably, most likely murdered. But they found no DNA of his or any bones or any clothing or anything that's been proven to be Eric's? Well, the clothing was part of what we found and looked like blood was on part of it. On three, it was a comforter, a man's shirt, and a woman's house coat. Uh, but the police never went and got them. They said they would. It, it, as far as I know, from what I was told, they never did get them. Um, they're not going to find any DNA if they don't go look for it. And they need to go. We tried to get them to do DNA testing at the motel. Um, the house where we believe he was killed um, on um, another item that was um, involved in it. And hopefully they're going to do some of that. But they it's been, I mean, six years. Stand how my son-in-law, Jason, could look me in the eye for five and a half years if he had murdered my daughter. Our cameras were again outside the courtroom looking in. So Cheryl. First. <laughs> yeah, I can. Woo. Good. It works. Select my podcast. Save. And then turn on monetization on YouTube. Save, turn on monetization, save, got it. I know there's a quite a few people that like to stay up to date with